The following program is a proud member of the Palaver family of podcasts. Check out all the shows over at palaver.com. That's P-A-L-A-V-R.com. You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Welcome to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. <laughs> Have I ever told you that I love you, Rick? You, Despite being as tired as I am, that put a huge smile on my face. <laughs> yeah, I had to go into my catalog of uh, PG's uh, collection to pull that one out, but it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't too hard to find, oddly, which... Uh, <laughs> Although my white suit was, so there we yeah. go. <laughs> it's not white anymore. The suit was, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a few brown stains on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's certainly a nod to uh, one of our films and a scene in that film. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so we are back and uh, ready for another episode. We are covering uh, Tony Monero, which is a Chilean film. Uh, what year is that from exactly? I think two thousand eight. Uh, yep, two thousand eight. Yeah, that's that's right. A film both of us had heard a lot about and it's one of those ones that kind of i think eluded us both for well, at least for a couple of years i guess so finally getting around to talking about it and a little underseen uh charles bronson film uh called cabo blanco which in the film they let you know over and over again it's set in cabo blanco they certainly did <laughs> uh and that's from uh what, what year is that from 80 what is that 1980 wow wow so uh there we go that's our films we're covering um uh, all right, let's get into what we've been watching. Uh, I don't think either one of us have watched a whole lot, so this shouldn't take too long. No, I think the most important thing we can take away from this week is that we both watched our uh, the, our, our NFL teams win and proceed to the quote unquote Final Four or their conference title games, respectfully or respectively. So, you know, that's a good thing. But uh, a couple more weeks, I'm sure our uh, viewing will go up a little bit. Um, yeah, I had a real light week. Uh, I watched. Wow, I watched three documentaries and one film. Um, I finished off the the History Channel's The History of Organized Crime documentaries uh, that they had. I had two countries to finish. One was India, and the other was Colombia. Um, the this it finished really strong for me, man. I uh, the Indian one was fascinating just to see how tied to the Bollywood film industry, the uh, the mobsters are. Um, I had some idea, but I didn't know they were that deeply entrenched. I mean, they pretty much run it, uh, if, if this is still accurate. I know this series is a little bit older now, but very fascinating. And then the Colombian one was also incredibly fascinating. You know, we all have that notion of Pablo Escobar and cocaine and everything, but to really... Uh, to, to see it, you know, for 45 minutes or an hour uh, and to see the extent to which you get, they had sort of what they uh, coined narco-terrorism. There was this one incident where I think 200 people were 
hostages were executed, including 12 judges. I mean, I, it was just astounding. Like, my jaw hit the floor when I'd seen that. So, very fascinating series on the whole. There's five different countries that are highlighted. I would highly recommend it. Um, the other documentary I watched was uh, Fela Kuti, the African musician, and it's uh, one called Fela Kuti, Music is the Weapon. And I'd said to you on the phone, um, this documentary was it was on Netflix and it's in Canada here. I, I thought it was very fascinating. I always like to, as I've always said, I like to see different cultures um, that I'm not as familiar with. Uh, but I think that what's most fascinating is he almost comes across as a polygamist, uh, free love, uh, Afrocentric, uh, civil rights version of Colonel Kurtz. Wow. <laughs> because he's got, he's got this, this compound where he lives and he, because he was such a huge musician in Nigeria, um, he, he bought up all this land and employed like 200 people basically to kind of run, you know, his little fiefdom. Um, and then because he became so powerful and, and he was, he was educated abroad and, and he had the opportunity, a lot of other Africans didn't, although Nigeria is a, a fairly affluent country by uh, African standards. Um, he started to speak out against the, um, the misdeeds of the government and they sent him a message very quickly. Um, but you no, know, it was very interesting. Uh, other than that, the film I watched was <laughs> one that I'm sure neither one of us would watch on our own, but since we're both married, it, it'll probably get around to it. Uh, and that was, of course, Life as We Know It. Oh, yeah. That's the, uh, that's the, what they got that girl that I don't like, right? Yeah, it's got your girl, uh, Catherine Heigl. It's got, oh, yeah. uh, Josh Dumel. Um, <laughs> It's got it's, and, it's, basically, uh, it's got baby poop jokes, right? Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, I, I was saying to my wife when we were watching it. Um, I will say this: it's not. It's it's incredibly obvious. It, it, it's you know, it has all all the baby jokes you would expect with the food and the poop and running around with the diaper and you know, it's it's got sort of the baby equivalent of the nut shot. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> time and time again. I, I don't mean literally. I mean, you know, the nut shots, the obvious broad comedy joke where you, you know, you know, the baby jokes with the poopy diaper and the food and stuff. Right. right. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen worse, but it's definitely something I would not watch. I mean, I rolled my eyes a lot, but I would say this. Um, it's uncanny. If you close your eyes and listen to Josh Dumel speak, he sounds identical to Michael C. Hall, who, of course, plays Dexter on the TV show Dexter. Okay. I'll have to try, well, that, I'll have to try that experiment. Do it because my wife kept saying we would watch Dexter, and I thought, oh yeah, yeah, sure. And then there was a couple times early on I thought, holy fuck, this. I mean, it's, it it really isn't like he sounds like him. They sound identical. So <laughs> okay. anyway, that's uh, that's my week in a nutshell. What have you been watching, my friend? I have only watched one other film other than the films for the show. I watched a documentary, and I just crammed that in yesterday when I was uh, feeding my son some oatmeal, <laughs> uh, which oddly enough he gets all over his face, and then somehow it ends up in my mouth. I don't know how that oh, happens, but it, it it ends up all over you, you know. So, <laughs> next thing I know, I'm tasting this oatmeal. It's like, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I watched a documentary called I don't know if it's on the Netflix Instant Watch up there, but it's on Netflix Instant Watch down here. I watched it. It's called Tapped. It's a documentary about the bottled water industry. It is. It is actually on uh, Instant here. I was going to watch it last week. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, I liked it. Uh, it it kind of starts with some threads that it never follows up on. So it's not like the best, well put together film, but. It does give you some interesting facts on uh, water companies and pollution, obviously, and stuff like that. Or not water companies so much, but the bottling companies, I should say. Uh, Nestle, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, places like that. The most, the most interesting thing in the film is that, you know, of course, a lot of people know this by now, that, you know, a lot of these companies just take the tap water that is in the local area and basically filter that tap water and put it into bottles and sell it. But 
they also uh, hang on, hang on. It's not from the mountains of the Swiss Alps. <laughs> no, well, not 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 your Aquafinas and your Dasanis. <laughs> maybe maybe your Evians. You know, if you're fancy schmancy, or the raindrops from the Amazon. Yeah, it's not that pure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but oddly, it's uh, the thing that's really weird about it is is that like whenever there's a drought in a local town, the bottling companies are evidently immune to the drought, so they can still take your water reservoir and uh, bottle their water to keep their profits going but you have to watch how much water you use so are you serious yeah evidently it's unregulated the bottling company so pretty interesting stuff man it's almost like the oil companies and stuff and uh, there's some stuff in there that'll get you pretty irate yeah that's the i find most documentaries when you watch them if they're about things like that you tend to get irate because it, it tends to be things we don't think about like who i mean i'll be honest i've never even given a moment's thought to the prospect of that occurring because it's just something i, I hadn't thought of but now i'm going to think about it when i hear about a drought i wonder oh, i wonder if those fucking bottling companies are at it <laughs> yeah yeah but evidently they're unregulated so they have all these rules that they don't have to follow and uh they have one person in the FDA that actually watches them. One person. So, oh know. wow! It's it's pretty amazing. I I could go on forever about it, but it's pretty amazing stuff. So, yeah, give it a watch. It's it's a good documentary. I liked it. So it's on Netflix to watch. So check it out. I will, man. I'll tell you this year for me so far, Sammy's been, uh, which is a good thing because I wanted to make a conscious effort to see more. But I've seen a lot of documentaries. I've already seen. Uh, let me see here. One, two, three, um, four, five. Six, seven documentaries this year out of about 22, 23, 24 films. So, also, you know, a quarter of my viewing has been uh, documentaries, which is good. Yeah, yeah, documentary film is, uh, is, is, and to me, it can be just as entertaining and just as interesting as uh, fictional film telling or any type of film. So, especially when they're well done, when they're well done, they really kind of stick with you, just like a real good film does. So, Oh, yeah. Emotionally, I think they can resonate, too, because, it, you know, it's reality in most cases or or a slightly, maybe, you know, a little bit fudged, but for the most part, it's reality. And I think you and I being parents, uh, one thing I like is a lot of them are information-based as opposed to visually-based, so um, we can kind of change a diaper and listen to what they're saying. <laughs> exactly. Like I said, I was feeding oatmeal, so I could hear that and, you know, all that information in the background. There is some really... Uh, I wrote on the uh, Miso account that uh, some of it's pretty disturbing. There are some disturbing facts in there about where the water company and where the drinkable water is going. You know, I hear all the time from people talking about how 75% of the earth is covered in water. We'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people don't know that only 1% of that is actually drinkable. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's not a very good ratio. So, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff, man. Definitely check it out. I'd, I'd be interested to talk to you more about it after you get done watching it. So. Is it a release this year? Do you know? I don't know. Actually, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I, I didn't look at the date to be honest with you. So, I just kind of with my Netflix stuff. I just kind of go through sometimes, and I'll check out the new arrivals, and I'll just see something. I'll be like, huh, I never heard of this, and I had heard of that one, but it's one of those ones like Tony Monero that had eluded me for a while. So I like, hey, that, that's the one thing about Netflix and to watch. Now you guys in Canada can relate to this. Sometimes it's like Christmas. You'll just go in there and look at the new arrivals, and you'll see something. You'll be like, oh, I always wanted to watch that. You know. Oh yeah, or, or you know what I've always I've heard you and kind of Brian, you new Netflix uh, guys in the states. I've heard your voice in my head as I'm scrolling through and I'm watching something. I'll think, you know, you've often said to me, "I'm watch. I watch something I never thought I would watch." Or you know, it's just things come up on instant, and you think, "Well, it's there. I'll watch it," and it ends up being great sometimes. Like that Felicuti documentary, I probably never would have um, out and out uh, grabbed it unless I'd heard something great about it. You know, it's just right. one of those things. Netflix kind of takes you down paths. Uh, 
you know, unexpected paths. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that is everything we've watched, and uh, that is us championing the Netflix as usual. And yes. uh, I think we'll take a short break, and we'll come back. Uh, you want to talk about? Let's talk about. Uh, I guess we'll talk about Cabo Blanco first. Probably got less to say about that than we do about Tony Monero. Huh? Yeah, we, we can definitely do that. I do want to say this because I meant to mention it on the air again. Okay. Uh, very, very quickly before we go to break, I can't recommend highly enough and thank Rupert highly enough uh, for turning me on to it, um, the Danny, Danny Perry uh, Guide for the Film Fanatic. Um, oh, yes. I read, I read a few pages of that every day, and every day I find literally a handful of incredibly interesting films that I'd never heard of that I feel that I must see. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like uh, Lage d'Or was one. Um um, uh, non troppo. Anyway, there's a, there, every day there's a handful of films, so I can't recommend highly enough people go out and buy this book. Uh, you can get it cheap on it on you know Amazon and all your different uh, retailers. So check it out if you're a film fan and you want to find some new films because it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a must own. I have to agree with Rupert on that one. It's a must own. I have my copy too. I've had it for years actually. So, <laughs> but yeah, you can't get it super cheap. You can, I've seen some places sell for like a dollar a dollar sixty used. I mean, come on, pick it up. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I promise you, you will use this book. For your life, your entire life. There's 1,600 films in there. Mm-hmm. So, yep. anyway, sorry, I just said to mention that. <laughs> All right. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back and talk about some Cabo Blanco. We'll be back right after this. Are you looking for a way to connect with people who like the things that you like? Whether it's music, movies, TV, or whatever you're into, head on over to the palaver.com forums. <laughs> yes, yes, but, but forums and message boards are elitist and archaic. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe if you're an asshole. Palaver.com is home to all your favorite podcasts. So why not head over there now? Start talking about all the things you want to talk about. That's Palaver.com. P-A-L-A-V-R.com. doing the turkey neck stretch there so <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know who sings that song sometimes i just pick songs at random out of my catalog and there we go that's awesome man that, that turkey neck stretch you saying that sounded incredibly dirty yeah. well i mean i have been known to stretch my turkey neck on occasion <laughs> that's a great great way to describe it that i've yeah. ever heard the most disturbing part is once i reach climax i'm like <laughs> oh man, that's great! Oh man, <laughs> watch out for my gobbler. Yeah, anyway. exactly. I was gonna say I had, had to fit a gobbler <laughs> reference in there. Oh, I think I know what the gobbler would be. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, so as long as it's not red, literally. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Uh, okay, so uh, let's get into actually talking about movies instead of from, from Turkey Next to Cabo Blanco. <laughs> yes. All right, so our first film is uh, Cabo Blanco from 1980. It is uh, directed by one uh, J. Lee Thompson, who directed a few Charles Bronson films. 
uh, known to work with Mr. Bronson, and he does some other stuff too. We'll talk about him a little bit more here. Uh, brief summary: uh, Offshore near Cabo Blanco, Peru, uh, an explorer of Sea Rex is murdered. However, local authorities decide that the official cause of death is accidental drowning. Among the skeptical is Giff Hoyt, which is a great name, by the way, an expatriate American, longtime Cabo Blanco resident, and popular innkeeper. We'll just leave it at that. So, um, basically, the film's a little bit of a riff on Casablanca. So, uh, all right, so it's it's a little bit of an underseen uh, Bronson. I thought it'd be interesting to talk about because Bronson did a few films in his filmography that were very. Uh, well, not very, but at least somewhat unBronson-like, and uh, this is kind of one of them. So, let's uh, let's hear what we talk about here. Let's see what you got to say about it. Yeah, you say underseen. I see underknown. I I had never even heard of this film uh, until you mentioned it last week. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's interesting to look at some of the Bronson stuff he did that is outside of what we all know him for the kind of vigilante films and the tough guy films stuff. Uh, even as much as I found it to be a mixed bag, stuff like Rider on the Rain or when we get to it, which I'm sure we will at some point, White Buffalo. These films that are more interested in his filmography are the, the Valachi papers, the films he did in Italy. Um, certainly oh, yeah. interesting to see uh, stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I love the Valachi papers. Oh, yeah, fantastic stuff, man, fantastic stuff. So, yeah, I'd never even heard of this one. Uh, I'm always happy to see the Bronson. He is certainly, um, you know, I would say, and I'm sure you would agree, if we had two patron saints of the show, it would be, of course, Silva and Bronson, and then the pecking order kind of goes down from there as, you know, yeah. <laughs> as we go. But those guys are perched atop the mountain for us, um, which is great, You you know, which I, I kind of found out afterwards was a bit of a a meta thing, a conscious thing you did to have, you know, Silva and Bronson in successive weeks. So I'm glad you did that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah Jay Lee Thompson and him worked together, you know, eight, nine, ten times. Um, so, you know, Jay Lee Thompson's actually been on our show before with yep. Bronson, of course, in the infamous 10 to Midnight, which uh, <laughs> yes. if you haven't seen, you need to see for, if nothing else, than Bronson swinging a long dildo around. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny in these movies he did with Thompson. He always has this one moment that you think you'd never go. There's a moment in this one too where he does something that you just never think you're going to see Charles Bronson do. And uh, I guess I can bring it up now. Uh, there's a yeah. scene with him and a parrot. <laughs> oh God! I... <laughs> so it's it's like what the hell? I mean, he I literally there's a conversation between him and a parrot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll uh, <laughs> I'll talk about that. It's it's you're right, man. There, Bronson has become so iconic uh, as far as American tough guys go, and certainly for us that you know you don't ever expect to see him in these really bizarre situations. Like if he's, it just it, it, they seem very bizarre, and that certainly was the scene in this film. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, but this film, uh, J. Lee Thompson, who it was like almost in, almost seventy when he made it. Yeah, uh, he worked he worked for a long time. Yeah, he really did. Um, Say so this film, you know, Casablanca, you know, it also reminds me of Macau, which is that Mitchum, Jane Russell film I watched last week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it kind of borrows from those two. Obviously more, well, no, but, you know, actually, Macau pretty pretty much, I think th there's this common sort of threads in these, you know, noir-y, a little bit noir-y, a little bit kind of 40s, pulpy, uh, a little bit influenced by the kind of action serials, Um of the time, but it really has got that feel, and they're really pushing that feel um, right down to <clears throat> that font they use for the credits, which is very much uh, you know a '40s kind of font. Which I, I love that font. Uh, it should be said, but it looks it looks great. Yeah, it feels like a it does it does it totally feels like a little bit of a sweeping like uh, studio picture from like the '40s, you know. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Uh, you know, this got some interesting. Um, 
more character actors, uh, I guess, in it. Of course, we haven't mentioned Jason Robards, who is, uh, plays the, the wonderfully named Gunther Beckdorf, the, <laughs> the white linen suit-wearing villain of the film. Yeah, I love Gunther. Uh, he, uh, it's just great to see Robards and Bronson on screen again, because you know, those two are in my, my favorite Western of all time together. So that's right, absolutely. Uh, this is great to see them together. I, I just had these you know, memories of Once Upon a Time in the West while I'm watching it. Yeah, no, you know, I didn't even re- I didn't even put two and two together at the time. As shameful as that is to uh, to say, I uh, I don't know why I didn't. I should have, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's great to see them together again. That was what about probably 10, 12, 10, 11 years after the fact. Yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, and then also you get Fernando Ray. Which he's been, he's been on the show before, right? We've, we've had him on the show before, I believe. I'm getting ready to go through his filmography while you're talking here. It's it's pretty deep. I think he's got a lot of credits on there. But Fernando Ray, <laughs> yeah. uh, probably known in, in, in North America, uh, mostly for French the French Connection films. And in fact, I, it's funny. I just saw a great uh, piece with... Um, Wow, the brain came to a screeching halt. With uh, Billy Billy Friedkin talking about how Fernando Ray was was not supposed to be cast in it uh, in French Connection, but he was through sort of serendipity. Uh, and then, of course, Simon McCorkendale, the manimal himself. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe you brought up Manimal, man, because I, I thought I was the only one that ever watched Manimal. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> Uh, you know what, Simon McCorkendale, uh, God bless him, he died this year, actually, or last year, I, at the end of last yeah, year. Yeah, I was really surprised to hear that, man. He was young. He was in his early 50s. And uh, he's not a great actor. Uh, no. uh, he, he, he's got a great look, but he's not a great actor. And, uh, you know, I just had this kind of little bit of moments of melancholy and stuff to seeing him and knowing that he just passed away recently, so. As did I, actually. I, I very much, you know, I didn't know this either. He was married to Susan George. Ah, no, I did not know that either. How about that? Yeah, I was kind of surprised to hear that, and, and you know, him between him and dying, yeah, it was a bit tinged with a bit of sadness because, you know, uh, you don't want to see anyone die, but he seemed like yeah. a likable enough guy on top of it. You know, we've we've all seen his face before. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing in this film, uh, just to kind of jump into another aspect of it, is of course the the hammering heavy Jerry Goldsmith score, which it kind of works because films that it's influenced by are very much. Um, they're obvious films, so I guess having an obvious kind of hammering loud Goldsmith score would work. But even still, it just feels like it's too banging too much for me. Yeah, it's a little heavy-handed. Uh, it's it's better than most Goldsmith, uh, but it, it just it does it just kind of pounds you a little bit. So it is, I have to agree. You know, it's a typical Goldsmith stuff, though. I mean, it tends to to me his stuff when he really tries to do themes, it kind of gets in the way. But, oh fuck! They're just swelling constantly, and I know. <laughs> oh man! But uh, hey, am I turned? Is I I I, I wow! <laughs> I hear an echo. Uh, well, it's just on your end. You sound fine on this end. Okay, good. Um, so if I'm stuttering and stammering, it's because my echo is throwing me off. <laughs> it does happen when you do these Skype podcasts, though. That's uh, not surprising. You hear the echoes occasionally. I do. I still hear them occasionally too. It's kind of shitty, but I'll try to soldier through it here. Uh, so, yeah, the film, I think, also uh, does an admirable job of trying to set up this film as um, uh, kind of this this uh, this kind of old-timey story, in a sense. What I mean is, you know, they get all these flashbacks, and it says her first day in Capoblanco, and they're really pushing, you know, it almost has the, the cinematic feel of, like, that leather-bound book with yellow pages. Oh, know, yeah, can, yeah. Like an old novel or something? Like an yeah, old- like an old novel, exactly. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Um, 
you know, we got Bronson, uh, you know, certainly playing the bogey role, uh, which, you know, would be obvious. And I know in looking into this, Jaylee Thompson and, and the casting director wanted to find someone that would appeal to women, but would also appeal to the common man. And they they talked about Paul Newman, which I think would have been a very interesting choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I can certainly see why they went with Bronson. To, a little bit more of an everyman, not to say uh, Newman can't do everyman. He could, uh, and he certainly did with Cool Hand Luke and a number, a number of other films. But he wanted someone just a little more salt of the earth, I guess. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Bronson uh, shows up in his, his denim shirt and his uh, jeans, and he's <laughs> he's, you know, cleaning tables and... You know, and the thing about Bronson, of course, uh, that we've come to know is it never ceases to amaze me how many everyman uh, jobs he has in his films. I mean, we we've, we always talk about it, but everything from ad executive to watermelon farmer to hotel manager, you know, it, it never ends. Yeah, he's had some of the most – for him, he's had some of the strangest jobs. And and even, even in films when he's like a successful man, like he's an architect – I oh, think. that's right. That's and right. Death in Wish. Uh, Death Wish, yeah. And uh, I guess a couple other weird jobs he's had. <laughs> I think he's a playboy in St. Ives. But, uh, no, he's a, he's actually a novelist. I oh, think. yeah, that's right. He's a novelist with a pipe. <laughs> that's right, man, with a fucking pipe. That's another J. Lee Thompson joint. Yeah. <laughs> so he's he's always got these interesting jobs that, uh, to me, uh, are always strange because it just he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would have these kind of jobs. Uh, but then again, he does to kind of seem like that because I think I'm looking at Bronson as, you know, Bronson's like... He's one of those weird actors, right? I mean, he's one of those guys that has immediate screen presence. There's only there's only certain actors who actually have that kind of stuff where they come on screen and they kind of just take it up because they have a unique face and in his case a unique face, unique ears, unique mustache, <laughs> unique denim shirt in this case because he wore, <laughs> he wears it quite a bit in this film. Oh yeah. Uh, uh but it's funny because you buy him no matter what he does and I don't understand how that's possible because he it's not like Bronson was a method actor you know I mean he's he's he's, a he's, very, he's always Bronson yeah he's always Bronson and uh, even when he does stuff that's kind of different like this and the novelist role and stuff like that he still has his Bronson moments you know he, he's not a chameleon let's just no no he's definitely not a chameleon like you know like somebody we, we compare him a lot to, to Silva Silva one thing I mean Silva's roles are a lot the same and stuff but I would say that Silva probably I don't know if I consider him a better actor than Bronson, but he definitely mixes it up. But he mixed it up a lot more than Bronson did. I would say I would agree with you, and I would say he's a little bit of a better actor. Maybe he doesn't have quite the presence Bronson's, Bronson does, but Silva's a little bit more varied in his roles. Uh, Bronson's maybe a little bit more presence. So, yeah, yeah no, I think that's very fair. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll cross this note off that says, add hotel manager to the list of harmless professions <laughs> that uh, Bronson has. Um, I will say that they shot this film in primary. It takes place off the coast of Peru, I guess, or maybe not the coast. Maybe that's not the right word, but um, uh, it, it it was shot in Mexico. And I, one thing I will say about this film is um, whoever scouted it did a great job of finding this locale because the film looks great. And the, the centerpiece where a lot of the stuff takes place in the film, this kind of grand old uh, weather-beaten hotel that, that Bronson owns mm-hmm. – um, looks fantastic i just wish they had have used it more effectively and the film was shot better to really take advantage of the beauty of that hotel yeah the hotel is fantastic and that house that robards has is fucking amazing oh, yeah it's an amazing house man yeah it really is it really is uh what else is fantastic beyond robards um house is what he wears with his white suit and that's a baby yellow ascot 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. His, the funny thing about Robards in this film is he's a great actor, uh, Jason Robards. I love him in a lot of films. But the funny thing about this film is, is that he, is that he, uh, his accent comes and goes. <laughs> yes. He pulls, a, he pulls a silver on us. <laughs> he does pull a silver. And you know what's interesting? I, I find Robards to be eminently likable. Yeah. And I find even in this film when he's playing a fucking Nazi on the run, <laughs> yeah. he still is likable. Like he's got, he's got a natural warmth, I think, to him that – um, is hard for him to shake. Mm-hmm. Not to say he's he can't, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, he's he's a very charismatic character actor. He's uh, I've always loved him. I've loved him in so many movies. I could name so many movies. Jason Robards that I love him in. Oh yeah, he's he is great, man. Uh, I will say that two technical things that really kind of stood out to me as as glaring a little bit uh, for me were the flashbacks. I found unbelievably clumsy and forced in. Uh, yes, yes. They were terrible. Yeah, they were bad. <laughs> and and the weird thing is they didn't even have a consistency because sometimes they'd be black and white, other times they'd be color. Uh yeah, 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 yeah. The, they did this thing with the the black and white blending in the color thing, which became like a little bit of a theme and stuff. And uh, you know, it didn't really work, right? I mean, it just kind of looked it kind of looked cheap somehow. I don't know why it didn't work, but it just didn't work. Yeah. No, exactly. And beyond that, the editing, I thought it was, and again, I'm no expert. I'm just a layman film lover, but the editing felt really jarring to me. Like, it, it you know, Chris, our great friend, uh, Chris, often says that you know what film's edited well when you don't notice it. Yeah. Uh, with this, it's very jarring at times, some of the cuts. You know, you know when you get those scenes when they try to build up a feverish pitch in a film and they're, they're editing, they're cross-cutting back and forth very quickly between two things. They try to do that in this, but it it doesn't build up or, or kind of bring things to a boil. If, if anything, it almost feels like you're having sex with a woman who doesn't know how to ride. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this is actually part of the problem with J. Lee Thompson in general. A lot of his films, even Ten to Midnight, which I like quite a bit and I like more than this film, uh, it 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 feels badly edited in spots and choppy. And uh, most of his films, actually, when I look through his filmography, especially his later career, they feel uh, pretty choppy and and stuff. I was just looking at the directors, of, the producers of this film. You know that I think we may have talked about them before the Hool Brothers, H O O L. Yeah, they did come up before, man. Now, that name does sound familiar. I think that's that's a Dutch name, if yeah, I remember correctly. Conrad Hool and Lance Hool. But I was just looking at their production credits. I mean, they produce such films as this, uh, Steel Dawn, the Swayze oh, film. Nice. Uh, the air up there, the uh, the Kevin Bacon yeah. basketball movie, uh, you know, Man on Fire recently. So it's, it's pretty crazy. They got the yeah. fl- Flipper. They're all over the place. Oh yeah, um, we see a few flippers in this film. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I will commend them for is the film. At times, it almost feels like a tale of three films. And and yeah, just to echo what you said about Thompson, I like Thompson, but he is, I think, the the uh, definition as far as we would define it as sort of a workman anonymous director and not to discredit him he put out some some interesting films certainly yeah. but i don't think he's he's what we would call an auteur no probably his uh, most well-known film i guess would be cape fear or possibly the guns of never own maybe yeah which is hey, he, hey, he's got a good body of work certainly but yeah. you know i don't think he has the signature move no no i mean he did a, some planet he did a conquest <laughs> of the planet of the apes did some stuff like that but uh not really known for his style. Bronson hooked up with two directors in his later career. Him, uh, Thompson, and Michael Winter, obviously. Yep. And those two directors he pretty much worked with uh, exclusively, pretty much, for the back end of his career from, like, Death Wish on, it seems. Yeah. Oh, no, he did work with them a lot. I will say this. The film 
and I'll, I'll talk about the difference uh, in the back third of the film later on, but early on it feels very much uh, almost TV shot, no real flourish to it. But I do find that I commend them for at least making an effort to shoot it like an older film. Like there's certain things they do with certain zooms and, and certain aspects of the film that they really tried to shoot it like it was a 40s film in terms of the way they would shoot a film back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it did. You know, here's the thing. I was thinking about this. I watched this film back in the day, but when I watched it back in the day, I watched it on like TBS. And uh, it's interesting now looking back at, at this version because this version has nudity, which, uh, and, and it's explicit nudity, actually. And, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, I was actually pretty surprised at the amount of nudity in the film because uh, I did not expect it at all. And uh, it's interesting to watch this version. Hang on. I'm going to take a phone call while you keep talking. <laughs> My wife's calling okay. me. Uh, so yeah, um, I will say uh, just to kind of it was a note I I want to say that because I want you to <laughs> comment on that. Uh, they play Nat King Cole a few times in this film, and, and Nat King Cole it just reminded me he's one of my favorite singers, and he has a, again a warmth in his voice, uh, a kind of a silky smooth warmth that I can always listen to. Uh, so it was great to hear him in the film, and the film closes with uh, Nat King Cole. It should be said. Um, what else do we got here? Um, yeah, th- these are all notes I kind of want to bounce off you, so <clears throat> I guess uh, we're going to kind of grind a little bit to a halt here in talking about this film. Um, interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. I was looking at something else uh, we talked about. So, yeah, um, the cast, uh, to get beyond that, you get some other character actors here, uh, Gilbert Rowland. Uh, of course, probably most notable was, was Clifton James, who we've seen in a lot of stuff over the years. Uh, so yeah, very interesting in that regard. Yeah, um, you know the one thing that hurts this film though is that that actress, oh. <laughs> Dominique Sanda. Fuck her! I was <laughs> mad at how much, how bland I found her because th- my next note, and I want to see. I'm glad you brought this up. I put McCorkendale had the right idea with Rosa. Fuck the milk toast blonde. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, it annoyed me that Bronson was so, and that was a thing. I mean, listen, hey, that she was cast, they had to go with her, but she bothered me because she was so bland, mm-hmm. so unengaging. Yeah. She wasn't breathlessly beautiful, um, and here she is, kind of the, the the centerpiece of of the film in a lot of ways, to get the the catalyst for a lot of things. And man, I just really, she fucking bothered me. Yeah, she. She that's the thing with a film like this the female has to be appealing or at least charismatic she has no charisma whatsoever No she's terrible I would honestly I I would take David Warbeck and drag over her <laughs> Whoa yeah, she's terrible. That would have made for a whole different film. Yeah, that sure would have. Uh, but he- no, she was miserable, man. Just like nothing to her at all. No, she was just uh I uh she was just she was so bland and it, every time she's on screen it really just kind of took me out. Of the movie quite a bit. Uh, I've seen I've, I've seen her in a few things before, but I've never seen her in anything that she stands out in. So I know she's in. Uh, I think she's in uh, one of those uh, Jan Michael Vincent apocalyptic films. <laughs> I believe she's hey. in it. <laughs> Speaking of Jan Michael Vincent, and of course the um, the Danny Perry Guide. Have you ever seen Baby Blue Marine Man? Because that one sounds fantastic. Yeah, I watched it this past year. Actually, yeah, it's oh, pretty. Wow. It's, it's pretty good. Do you have it? Uh, yes, I think I do. Oh, I'll have to converse off the air. If I do not, uh, somebody uh, very close to us does have it. That's who sent it to me. Was uh, Oh, I think I know who. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was actually downright angered by the lack of charisma that uh, that she'd shown. Um, 
And speaking of her and and girls in general, my next note is all these dames, no Jill Ireland. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird, and it? I, I don't know if she was uh, sick around this time or or what happened, you know? Because you know it's kind of infamous. Bronson took a lot of movies in the '80s because you know his wife got sick, and uh, you know she had breast cancer, and uh, you know he had to pay for things and obviously and stuff and. Uh, so I guess maybe maybe she might have been sick around this time because they did a lot of stuff around this time together. So I do know a piece of trivia was, um, and you know, if this is going to sound ignorant for anyone that's sort of into old time Hollywood uh, facts, because it's, it's going to be a glaring um, absence of knowledge on my part. But I, uh, with Casablanca, Bogey didn't work with his wife, uh, and Bronson didn't work with his wife on Capoblanco. Yeah, it's interesting actually. So and see that's the thing they tried to make Dominique Senda like the uh, what was her name? Uh, oh, uh, Ingrid. No, 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 no. Oh, this is see we're gonna embarrass ourselves. I think here it was. Now. I think it was Ingrid Bergman, right? Yeah, Ingrid Bergman. That's yeah. right. And, but she she had uh, a natural beauty and appeal uh, that Senda uh, just doesn't have. She just doesn't have it, man. I mean, I know it sounds terrible to say, but I mean, I don't think I think anybody that watches this film will agree with us. I just don't think there's anything very appealing about her. No, she looks like an ugly, uncharismatic Diane Kruger. Yes. And her voice is very deep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's deeper than it has any business to be. And yeah, I, I don't think to to go back to uh, Ingrid Bergman. I don't think she is uh, stunningly beautiful, but she has a, a mystique about her. You have to the woman either has to have a mystique, an inherent mystique, or has to be beautiful. And Dominique Sanda is neither. Yeah. Uh, but what is what does have a mystique and what is beautiful is Charles Bronson in the fucking plaid kimono. <laughs> Oh yeah, he was rocking that thing, wasn't he? Oh yeah, that was incredible, man. Um, what else? Again, just to segue along here, incredible is the, the 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 volume of Hispanic and Polynesian breasts in this film. Oh yeah, yeah. If I, if I may be piggish for a moment, uh, both films feature a lot of breasts this week. If you're a tit man, this is a good episode for you. Yeah, and if you look close, there's some Peruvian sausage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and some Chilean sausage. Yes, there we say. go. <laughs> yes, there we go. Um, now. At this point, where I'm getting into my notes is where the film took a bit of a, a turn for me stylistically, and it got a lot better. It's when that scene when Bronson he's about to put on a shirt, and the camera's kind of swirling around the behind him at, at the hotel. Yeah, yeah. When they're really taking advantage of that space of the hotel and, and just the walls of the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, that, this is when the film it's weird it shifted from kind of like that conventional made for TV slash 40s film into almost like a De Palma film. With with some of the colors and the way the camera moved in the back third of the film, yeah, the the club scenes are lit like a like a De Palma film from the eighties, and uh, yeah, no, it starts to swirl around. The rain kicks in real big, and that's a nice stylistic touch. Oh yeah, I'm very atmospheric. Yeah, it really turns in more like a noir type thing, and uh, you know the music does swell a little too much. But it, it you're right. After a certain point, it gets it really kind of amps up. It's it's a little slow. That's the biggest problem with this film. Usually, sometimes with films they fall apart in the back end. This one actually picks up in the back end. It's kind of slow to start in the beginning, like the first I don't know thirty forty minutes. It's it's really establishing the area, who the bad guys are. Uh, what she's there for, the treasure, all this stuff, Simon McCorkendale. Or there's one scene where, and I don't know why this always gets me, drives me crazy. Usually it's a swimming pool in American films, but in this film somebody falls in the water in the ocean. Of course, everybody laughs. I don't know why that's funny, but for some strange reason in cinema, it's always funny when somebody falls in water. And uh, it's ridiculous. But either way, uh, you're right. I mean, after a certain point, it really amps up, and it turns into quite a good little thriller, uh, barring a... Uh, a parrot scene. Uh, it turns into a pretty good little thriller on the back end. Coco loco. 
Cocoloco. I should have got an audio clip of that because it's pretty fucking funny, man. Yeah, Bronson talking to this parrot saying, Cocoloco, Cocoloco. But no, you're right, man. That the last 20 minutes or so, uh, and you'll hear me talk about them, of course, later on to show my hand, really saved the film for me because the problem is you don't have enough robards to engage you. Sand is on screen far too much to keep you cold. And let's face it, you know, God bless Simon McCorkendale, but he's a little bit of a sparkless wonder as well. I mean, he suits that kind of the British kind of uh, Oxford-educated adventurer, but but really, he's a little bit bland too. So you're left with um, some Bronson as hotel manager and a little bit of Robards, and beyond that, um, because it's not an action film, it's you're not as engaged during the, the quiet times. You know who would have been really great in the McCorkendale role? Uh, I know this sounds crazy, but I would have liked to have seen Jan Michael Vincent in that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to see those two work together again. Because yeah. to me, ever since the mechanic, like Jan Michael Vincent, to me, he was going to be the next Charles Bronson. Yeah. Because that's what they kind of build him as, right? I mean, we've watched some of his films and stuff, but oh, yeah. he always reminded me of Bronson. He looks great. Uh, he's not the greatest actor in the world, but he has a presence. And I was always hoping that he would do more of those. But of course, you know, he got, in, you know, unlike Bronson, he kind of got hooked on some bad things and some bad drugs and alcohol and thing situations. So it didn't really work out. But it would have been great to see them two together again. I always thought those two, for some strange reason, maybe it's just a mechanic or something, but they always felt father and son to me. Yeah, no, I could see that. I think it has to be partially the mechanic. And then on top of that, you have um, a, a silent kind of confidence bordering on arrogance, but not to the point where it puts you off. Yeah. They both have a very much a confidence about them. And the squinty eyes, let's face it. They both kind of squint yeah. <laughs> uh, when, they, you know, when they're on screen. Um, Bronson, and I don't know if this is the term. I don't really play RPGs or any of that stuff, and I don't think you do, but you might know the term. But Bronson really works the wooden crates and overhead melee weapons in this film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> I do, actually, I do play RPGs, and yes, <laughs> you are correct. It's almost like a video game. Like, what's he looking for? Coins? Or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know, man. It's just he's always fucking swinging things around, breaking shit with stuff overhead, with overhead smashes. <laughs> See, J. Lee Thompson was ahead of the whole Scott Pilgrim thing, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he was ahead of the House Who thing. Actually, no, House Who was ahead of him because I was going to say there was death by fold-up bed in this. Oh, yeah. That's right. There was. <laughs> yeah, which sounded squishier than I think a death by fold-up bed any, had any business to sound. Oh, yeah. but, it's kind of gooey. Yeah. Um, the beat-up blonde in the film, which they, they really – she was just a throw-in. It was kind of pointless. That really led nowhere. But when she was beat up and they had the purple <laughs> bruise makeup, I couldn't help but think of bar- poor Barbara Boucher. Yeah, that, 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 that role was like suited for her, wasn't it? I was thinking of her too, man. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I love when Bronson, uh, he does his little one-liners. Like this one when he says, one sugar, whole cream. And then he gun butts the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got this way of talking. You know, it goes back to that, uh, get any sausage? You know, that yeah. whole thing from uh, Mr. Majestic or whatever, you know? Yeah, that's right, man. Um, but, yeah, no, we talked about how it just kind of changed stylistically. And uh, that's pretty much all my notes, man. I'll kick it over to you. All right. Um uh I got a few things to add. Maybe uh, again, this is a little hard to find, but it is out there and about. Um, you know, so you, you can see it in places and stuff like that. Uh, uh, the film is a riff on Casablanca. We talked about that. It's weird seeing. I, I don't know. For me, it was weird seeing Bronson in a tropical locale. I don't know if I can't think of any of his other films where he's really in a tropical locale. He tends to always be in like a midwestern to western type locale. Maybe a you know or to eastern like a, yeah. 
New York. And so. Yeah, usually it's just weird seeing him in a wide, a wide open space that has like beaches and stuff like that. Usually in wide open spaces, I see him, you know, with horses and and dust and stuff. But you know, of the course, mechanic, the yeah. mechanics in Italy, man, and the beaches and the water. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. He was at one point. He got over there. That's right. It is right. There we go. We got that. Uh, of course, you know, he's he's quite old by this point. He's starting to get up there in years. Uh, uh, the man was just, uh, I have to say this, I always have to say this because Bronson's always fascinated me. I don't know if he ever really worked out or anything. I think he was more like just a farm kind of guy. But, uh, yeah, he, totally. He, he won the genetic lottery when it comes to staying in shape somehow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fuck, man. The guy was in great, I, we, we always say it, but uh, of you know late 50s, whatever it was, he was in better shape than I'm in now, and I'm 31. Yeah, let's see, at, at 1980, he was uh, six, 59, 60 years old, around that age. And, uh, wow. Yeah. Already in good shape, but you got to that. I would always think of is him in hard times, where you know he's like fifty something, and he looks like he's. I mean, he looks as uh, you know like Jean Claude Van Damme in his prime. You know. Yep. So it's pretty amazing. He just really won the genetic lottery when it comes to that. Uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, it feels like. Uh, yeah, it feels like you're right. It felt like Thompson wanted to do something different. I felt like he probably wanted somebody else, but he ended up. You know, it's obvious that him and Bronson had a rapport and they worked well together and. Again, some of their films are diminishing returns, but some of their films I, I quite enjoy. Uh, let me see here. What, let me look with one. I know we like Ten to Midnight, obviously. Uh, Congetti for Forbidden Subjects is kind of fun. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I got that on VHS. Messenger of Death, which is arguably maybe Bronson's last really solid movie or last Bronson esque movie that he really did. Got that on VHS too. He did Death Wish Four and Five, but Death Wish Four and Five are pretty rough. Yeah. Um, Murphy's Law, which is one uh, we should probably do on the show. The Evil Dead Men Do is actually pretty good. And, Got that on VHS. And The White Buffalo is definitely a uh, a guilty pleasure for me. It's basically a Jaws film in some ways, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun. The uh, only reason why I've held off on that for so long is because I remember when Simba Baca came back, they covered that. And I was like, you know, I always try to put some space between coverage of films between the shows. But I'm oh, sure yeah. we'll get around to that, just like we'll get around to most Bronson films. Yeah, <laughs> oh, for sure we will, man. I mean, we could do. I could do a whole year of Bronson movies. <laughs> we totally could, man. He's got what about? I'm probably ninety credits or something. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, again, we talked about this a little bit in the intro, but this film does take place in Cabo Blanco, which the character, every character in this film, reminds us of very often. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, and that's a riff on Casablanca because they say it a lot in Casablanca too. You know, they they say the name of the place they're in, but it always drives me crazy when somebody keeps saying the title of the film in a film. You know, <laughs> Cabo Blanco. <laughs> yeah. Especially Fernando. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's a very simple thriller. Uh, again, with a strange amount of nudity that, of course, I don't remember as a kid because I used to watch this on TBS. TBS used to show Bronson films, and my mom, like I told you, she's a big Bronson fan, and she would watch these Bronson flicks, and uh, you know, I would catch them. And, and this one always kind of stood out because it's kind of different than most Bronson films in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, you get to some Bronson esque moments toward the back end, but uh, you know, there's a lot of dialogue in here, which is typical, not typical of a Bronson movie. A lot of scenes where he's Talking about people moving moving a uh, plot uh, forward and stuff, and and that's just not really typical Bronson type things. But uh, it does get to that typical stuff, and it really does. You're right. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. My note here is it really does pick up in style and pace and and uh, intention and stuff toward the back end and stuff. And the scenes between Robards and Bronson are just great. Uh, you could tell this is two really good actors. Uh, uh, arguably, some for some people, great actors, but. Uh, it's very interesting to watch them two work together. And even Fernando Ray. Fernando Ray is really good in this film, you know, playing the police captain, Toretto, Toretto or whatever his name was. Uh, oh, I, totally. I did like him a lot. He's a very appealing actor. Uh, I, I thought he babe, I thought he was in that 100 Rifles movie, but maybe I was wrong. I, yeah, yeah, I know you're right, man. But I can't find it on his filmography. I mean, the guy's, you know, he's got like a fucking, you know, fucking 
236 <laughs> acting credits, man. I would, I can't really, you know, yeah, it's going to take forever to even figure out if he was in that or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that makes, that makes, uh, that's a lot of volume. <laughs> that is, man. But he's a very popular character actor, and he's very good. He's very good in the movie, and uh, the scenes between him and Bronson are great. He's having a little threesome action. That was pretty fun. Uh, <laughs> and Bronson comes in, you know, Bronson's never one to, you know, knock on a door. He just kind of walks in. Hey, what are you doing there? You know? <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. It, it's not a great movie, but I think if you're interested in some different type of Bronson films, I think this one is 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 interesting. Uh, I don't think it's great, but I do think it's interesting. So uh, that's all I really got to add. You want to go ahead and give your MVTs and stuff? Okay. Um, make or break what made it for me and what saved this film was the, the back 20 minutes of the film. Like I said, it has a bit of a yeah. flourish to it. And I, I get it. I get what they were trying to go for, and that's why they shot it the way they did and so forth. But... Um, it just, I don't think they took advantage enough of the locales and of, of shooting the locales a certain way. And, uh, so the end really kind of made up for that with me with the rain and everything else and the colors and whatnot. Uh, MVT, clearly Bronson. If this had been someone I didn't like, if it was someone very bland, uh, had it been David Warbeck, for example, oh, yeah. it would probably have knocked the film down at least another point for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, my score for the film is a little low, but I, uh, it's a 5.5, um, I think it's a, it's an above average film. I think it has its moments, certainly, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that for an eighty six minute film, I shouldn't. It shouldn't feel as slow as it did for the first two thirds. And like I said, I wasn't expecting a romp, but I think it really comes down to the casting of the the, the milk toast blonde and um, and you know to a lesser degree uh, McCorkendale. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't? He doesn't really give him much to do more of the blonde than anything, I guess. Yeah, and the McCorkendale character is really strange too, because after a certain point, he just kind of disappears. Yeah, he's just kind of pointless for the most part. He just kind of gets things going a little bit with kicking up some dust about some things, and then he just laying in a bed, and that's yeah. about it. He is seriously the most most pain in the ass character. If you're the if you're the bad guys in this town, I'm like, why did you let this guy stick around? Because he's constantly in the way. Yeah, <laughs> he'll show up. He'll show up no matter what, and be like, "Who did this? You're, you're blah blah blah." You know, and he'll just be so upset and raising hell. And I'm like, why didn't somebody kill this guy yet? <laughs> so it's oh, really strange. But then he just disappears for a while. All right, all right, that, that, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, my make or break is going to be uh, the scenes between Bronson and Robar. It's just great to watch those two work together. There's two or three really great scenes. One where you know, <laughs> Robar is wearing the white robe, and oh uh, yeah, <laughs> and you know he shows up and stuff. And then of course the scene in the uh, in the bar with the parrot and stuff. Even though the parrot's kind of ludicrous, uh, he it's 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 interesting. The the just watching those two work together. It's like you know those two were friends off screen. I do know that because I remember that I'd seen interviews with Jason Robards and he always called him Charlie. And I knew the people that really knew Bronson called him Charlie. Like Bronson was like real good friends with, uh, oh, what's that actor's name that was on the Odd Couple TV show, Klugman or whatever his name was. Jack oh Klugman? yeah, yeah, Jack Klugman. Uh, yeah, evidently they were roommates for a long time and stuff, and uh, they were real good friends too. And I always remember he, he would call him Chuck or Charlie. So evidently, whoever knew him really well called him Charlie. Do you know <laughs> if there was ever a great documentary produced on uh, Bronson? There's been like little bits and pieces, but there's never been a definitive one, man. I wish somebody would really take that project on because really, if you think about it, an actor like Bronson's pretty unique in film history. I mean, he really didn't get, he really wasn't a box office star until he was in his fifties. Yeah, mean, you're right. I mean, really death wish was his biggest moneymaker. Uh, and, and up to, I think up to that point, I mean, obviously he was in some big movies like the Magnificent seven and the great escape and stuff like that. But, he became a centerpiece, and then he became like a worldwide uh, movie star. I mean, his movies in the 70s, they made a ton of money. And he was big everywhere, right? Italy and uh, Europe and everything. He was huge everywhere. So, 
uh, he's really an interesting kind of a blip on the uh, on the Hollywood scene. Uh, I really would like somebody just to take on you know some of these character actors anyway because we always champion them on the show anyway. So I like to see a Silva, you know, a better Silva doc. Well, I don't think there's ever been a definitive Silva documentary either. And uh, some of these character actors, you know, I remember reading an interview with uh, Robert De Niro back in the day when he didn't do as many interviews as he does now. And uh, which, by the way, if you guys haven't seen uh, the speech, I didn't watch the Golden Globes, but I did watch the Robert De Niro <laughs> speech that he gave when he got the Lifetime Achievement Award or whatever it is at Golden Globes. Oh, yeah. And it's really a great lesson in humility that he's making fun of some of his career choices in the last 10, 15 years and making fun of Meet the Fockers and all these things that, you know, unfortunately he has to do to kind of finance some things he wants to do, right? So uh, it's really, it's really, it's a great lesson in humility that, you know, he's had to go through. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, the only thing I heard from that, I heard him say, uh, for those of you that honored me with this two months ago, uh, you clearly didn't see the reviews for yeah. uh, Meet the Fockers, which, I, you know, is funny, but I, gosh, I wish he just would do one more. I mean, he, he's cemented himself. He doesn't need to do any more, but the selfish part of me wants him to just do one more because he's at that age now where, mm-hmm. as an older man, and for people like us who really get into a great performance, he's got at least one more great one in there. Yeah, I was hoping that Righteous Kill was going to be that movie, but of course that was a. A, tur- a turd. <laughs> Righteous turd. Yeah. But, I mean, we do have hope. He's doing another, him and Scorsese and Pacino are working together, right, on uh, The Irishman or something like that. So. Yeah, the Italians are doing The Irishman. Figure that out. So, whatever that is. But uh, I, I got my fingers crossed. Let's put it that way. I got a feeling he's got one more great film in him. I, I just get, so. But you're right. He has cemented his thing. But anyway, I just like to see more documentaries on character actors in general because I don't think they get enough uh, attention. Uh, my MVT is obviously Bronson. As well, I mean, it's pretty much centered around him. But I mean, really, other than Jason Robards, nobody really stands out. Fernando Ray's pretty fun, but nobody really stands out in the film anyway. Uh, my score for the film's a little bit higher in yours. It's a six, and I would bet that that half a point probably has a lot more to do with nostalgia and remember girl watching this growing up than it does with actual film quality. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, this is just a slightly above average movie. It's a good like sun, rainy Sunday afternoon time waster, but it's not something I would like. If you came over to my house, I wouldn't say, "Hey, dude, you ever seen Cabo Blanco?" And we'd sit down and watch it together. No way. Totally agree with you. I I didn't bring it up because I didn't want it to feel like because we, we say that about a lot of the Bronson films. Uh, a lot of them feel do feel like just perfect Sunday afternoon laying on the couch films. Yep. Absolutely, man. Yep. All right, so that is our thoughts on Cabo Blanco. We're going to take a, a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about some Tony Monero, which ought to be an interesting conversation. So oh, yeah. we'll be back right after this. This is a great jump film from the Girls on Film Radio. Are you tired of all those vegetarian or vegan podcasts? We just listened to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema had to say about the Girls on Film Radio. A lot of good meat in there. There's a lot of good meat in there uh, that the girls talk about. You guys got a lot of nice meat over there at the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So there you have it. The meaty film discussion by meaty women. Listen to Girls on Film Radio. Girlsonfilm.podomatic.com Dress, to the press, spark a bitch interest, 
All right, we are back. I am shaking my money-making gobbler over here. <laughs> Should have whipped that gobbler out for Thanksgiving. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> no, I'll leave the stuffing joke. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was some stuffing going on, all right. Anyway. All right, so uh, next film is Tony Monero. You picked this one. Uh, let's see, let's uh, get a synopsis, and we'll talk about it here. Okay, sorry. I was just looking through the Another World Entertainment catalog um, because a friend of the show, Alan, um, was kind enough to point out that they've put out, they're putting out in April 2011, Hands of Steel and Blast Fighter on DVD. Ah, yes. So they got a lot of great stuff uh, coming out there. They got a lot of really good catalog, really varied, everything from South Korean stuff like Address Unknown to uh, Coffee with a great cover. Um, so, yeah, uh, but I digress. Blast, Tony Monero. Blast, Fight, Blast Fire is totally worth it for the Lumberjack Eastman. Yes. <laughs> and the Tiger Sharp, right? That's his name? Good old Tiger Sharp. <laughs> yeah. And and what is it, Evening Star? Yeah, Evening Star, the uh, Barry Gibbs song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Tony Monero, uh, 2008, uh, directed by Pablo Lorraine. Um, very simply, it says, and I don't know if this is necessarily accurate, but... Uh, uh, I'll just I'll just revise a few words. A disturbed man is obsessed with John Travolta's disco dancing character from Saturday Night Fever, Saturday Night Fever during the Pinochet rule in Chile. Mm-hmm. All right. So this movie is interesting. This was one. This is one of those kind of film geek things. Uh, Will you want to give a little bit of a backstory of how this has eluded you a little bit? You told me a little bit last night, but you might want to share it a little bit actually. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it was 2008. It was my first year at TIFF. And uh, again, I don't know why I had spent wasted so many years not going, but I, I didn't. And that was the year I decided to go. So uh, I remember going and looking at the, they give you a book. And there's nothing really to the book beyond the name of the film and the director mm-hmm. um, yeah. at the time. And I remember looking at the book and seeing the name Tony Monero and it immediately grabbed my attention. And I I, uh, I went home and I looked up the film and, and saw what it was about. And I thought, oh, man, I got to see this. I really got to see this. And sure enough, it was playing on a day that I, I could not go. And every year that's the case. I don't like to typically take too many days off work to go to the festival because um, I usually get three days off a week anyway. Right. So, you know, I, I try to work it around the four days I'm off, maybe take one extra day because I don't want to you know, be away from my family that much either. So anyway, I couldn't see the film then uh, because it's a Chilean film. Uh, it was a little bit difficult to see until it had to kind of do the circuit and and kind of work its way over to uh, DVD and so forth. So, uh, yeah, that's how it had eluded me, and I know you also had wanted to see it. Yeah, I had seen write-ups about it uh, for a long time and uh, kept kept popping up. And it's just one of those things. It came out on DVD, but again, it was still eluding me. I just never got around to it and stuff. And then you put it on a roadmap, and I was like, well, now I don't have an excuse anymore. Now I'll have to watch it at some point, which is really good because I had been wanting to see it forever. Uh, so this all worked out in the uh, in the long run here. Yeah, and it just came out, I believe, I just looked it up so our listeners can check it out. Uh, Region 1 was 2000, June 2010, so it is out there. And it's interesting because Chilean film has a pretty spare history. I know I was looking into it, and the information I was looking at could be wrong, but it looks like they don't do any more than 5 to 15 films a year. So yeah. um, to see something like this uh, come out of a country that has such a small output is very interesting. they got a, a mini little boom going on with some of the Marco Zoror films like Giltro and... And another film that Lorraine did, I, I looked into. So uh, anyway, yeah. So I picked this film. It's eluded us both until now. Uh, very, very curious to see what you think of this film. 
Right. Uh, so we have uh, a few things, some, some even some GGTMC type material. We have uh, a members only jacket. <laughs> That's my first note too. <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty amazing. I was like, wow, is this was this movie made for us? What's going on here? You know, <laughs> I didn't expect that. You know, but I guess I guess I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> it seems like everything we pick somehow, some way, the members only jacket pops up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> along with that and penises, it seems like uh, you know those will pop up at some point. Yeah. A lot of cock in this episode. Uh, I'm not much of a dancer. I have to say that right now. I mean, I, I can, you know, I can, I can, I'm serviceable. I don't look like a buffoon. Uh, but, uh, you know, our, our lead in this film, <laughs> Raul, played by Alfredo Castro, he, uh, he struggles a little bit with some of his dancing. Uh, he, but there's some scenes where he does okay. It's really weird. It's, 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 it's very realistic, I think, because it's like when he has to perform, he kind of pulls it together. But when he can't perform or when he's just kind of trying something, there's that great scene where he, he, he tries to do the, uh, the infamous, and it should be said. Let me go ahead and go back a little bit before I get to that. We, he's he. This is a guy who is obsessed with Saturday Night Fever, and in particular, the character of Tony Manero, played by John Travolta. Now, uh, I know you're a fan of Saturday Night Fever. Uh, I'm a fan of Saturday Night Fever. I mean, it is a time capsule movie, no doubt about it. But it is also a very deep movie. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. People dismiss that film as being, oh, the disco film. It is so much more than that. It is an excellent film that says a lot about youth and says a lot about uh, that time, certainly, and that, that person and that culture in, in New York at the time. It's a fucking excellent film. Yeah, my favorite thing about the film has always been that it is about that period of youth where like, you get out of high school and you're kind of like in between. You really don't know what you want to do with your life. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's those those two or three years in between where high school kind of, and, and at least here in the states, I'm sure it's similar to up there with you guys. Uh, you know that that's a very, uh, re- you know, kind of a rigorous schedule. You're kind of on that schedule for the most of your young life, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden that schedule's gone, and you have to kind of re you know reassess what you want to do with your life. You know, get a job. You know, some people start out with you know part time jobs or or jobs as you know whatever. And some people go straight to college. Some people don't. Some people you know whatever. But it's really that great storytelling of that those moments in between and stuff. And you know you can see that all that stuff's going on in the film. Uh, our character though, he's more obsessed with. It seems he's more obsessed with the the white suited heroics of Tony Manero on the dance floor. I think so, and the more I think about this film, and I think the more we're going to discuss it, the more I think there's a lot more going on and being said in this film than even I had thought. I think part of it is, the big thing I think of it is the obsession with, the pervasiveness in American of American culture, even in um, a communist country in South America in the 70s, uh, certainly is part of it because the whole CIA-backed um, overthrow by Pinochet, but... Um, even more than that, I think, you know, you t- brought up a great point about his dance moves failing him sometimes. One of the big things in this, I think, is, is he's trying to to hunt down that unicorn that is uh, Father Time. Because a lot of the times, I think, when he can't do the dance moves, it's because his body's failing him. Because he's a man that's probably in his early 50s. Yeah. Um, and he can, it's almost like a boxer or a great football player. One of these guys, they can pull it together when they need to if they put everything into the moment of of that moment, but otherwise their body fails them, although the spirit's willing. Similar to Nolte's character in North Dallas 40. That's a good example. Absolutely. Remember how his body was always, outside of playing football, his body was uh, just a fucking wreck. But then when it would come game day, you know, he would step it up. 
you tape himself up and you know. yeah, take a couple shots, you know, do whatever you got to do. But at the same time, he would still perform. Uh, that's a really good example, actually, because there's a lot of performance issues. <laughs> I kind of laugh, but there's a lot of performance issues in this film, <laughs> oh, yeah. so to speak. And then some moments where he really steps it up involving uh, some uh, brown eye. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but it, it, I think we can say that, that our character is a, a disturbed individual, uh, a sociopath. I think we can say that, right? Yeah, I think we can. Uh, really, if you was to actually look at the plot synopsis, it kind of tells you what you know what the plot, what 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 it kind of is about. But you know what? I never really paid attention to that. So when the first scene happens, it's a great fucking scene too. The Ooh. first scene happens uh, that you know we see this other side of this character, Raúl. Uh, really, really kind of caught me off guard. And you know, here I am. I've, I've been watching movies forever, and I'm 37 years old, going on 38. I am a layman as far as critics go. I'm not the world's greatest critic. I do this because I love talking about movies and, and all that good stuff. But it's really great nowadays to still be surprised sometimes. And that kind of came that kind of came out of nowhere <laughs> for me. I, I had known it, but even in knowing it, I was still surprised how it impacted me and, and how um how it felt awful. Like you know, let's just say, let's come and say, there's a few murders in this film, and nothing's really shown. But it's the sound design and the way it's shown just out of frame that is done very effectively. And it, I'll be honest, that first one, I, I felt I was very uncomfortable because it's like a ticking time bomb when you get these sociopathic characters. I felt queasy a little bit watching. It. It like, yeah. I mean, not to say it was fucking irreversible or anything, but no. it, was, it was a pretty rough scene. Yeah, no, it's, and nothing is like extremely graphic. It's not like, uh, yeah, it's not like a No Way or somebody like that, but. It's a lot of sound design and and setup and stuff, and it kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, like I guess it, 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 you know what it reminded me of a little bit. It reminded me a little bit, not as graphic or as explicit, I should say, but it definitely had the feel of like uh, a Henry portrait of a serial killer a little bit. Oh yeah, because the way it, it deals with um, effectively deals with the brutality of murder without um, uh, what's the word I mean without um, sensationalizing it. Yeah, because there's something cold. Very, cold, very, very, very cold about the way Raul does his business. And it's not like he... The f- the first thing that happens, it's very random, which is always scary when you think about serial killers. The most scary thing when you think about serial killers is how random it can be. Okay? Oh, yeah. And that, that, that freaks you out because you think, hey, that could happen to me. Because random it freaks everybody out. Everybody's always looking for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. So when we catch these guys and they just say, "Oh, you know, I just, I, I just did it because I wanted to do it," well, that fucking that that'll send a chill down your spine because it makes you think, "Fuck, man, what if I'd have been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or what if my wife would have been there? Or now, even for me, what if my son would have been there? Jesus Christ!" I mean, you start to have these thoughts, right? And about how scary and how random life can be sometimes. And uh, so the the first one's kind of random, but it seems like a lot of stuff after that is kind of kind of more driven by obsession and stuff, which is really good because the film is about obsession. It's it's really about that. This is a character who, like a lot of sociopaths, he lives in his own world and he's obsessed with uh, a character from a film. Now, this it would have been easier, I think, for the director to take a character like like this and make him obsessed with like Hannibal Lecter. Or make him obsessed with, like, you know, these glorified killers we have in cinema, right? Mm -hmm. But I love that he took the Tony Manero route because I I thought I was getting into something else when I watched this movie. I thought I was getting into something that might have had a little bit of love for the camp aspects of Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, obviously now, in retrospect, Saturday Night Fever does have some camp value. Okay, I mean, because, just strictly because of the disco, really, more than anything else. Oh, well, yeah. In the age, certainly, inherently, the aesthetic is so overblown and over the top that, yeah, you can't help but uh, marvel at the <laughs> yeah excessiveness of it. Yes, yes. And, and I thought that that was what I was going to be in for, you know, a little bit more of the camp aspect. But really... Some of the most interesting things about the film is is that he really, really, really identifies with the Tony Monero character uh, to the point to where some of the greatest scenes in the film are him sitting in a movie theater pretty much alone, and he pretty much repeats all the dialogue to Saturday Night Fever. And evidently, this theater must show Saturday Night Fever several hundred times or something, and he must go like every day and stuff. And at one point, there's a great scene where they change the film to Greece, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he goes in, you know, and it's a great fucking scene, man, because you can see the heartbreak on his face. At seeing oh, yeah. John Travolta, who to him is not John Travolta. To him, John Travolta is Tony Monero. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like for me, John Travolta will always be uh, fucking the guy from Welcome by Cotter. He'll always be that guy. Yeah. Because I grew Vinnie up watching. <laughs> He'll always be Vinny Barbarino to me because that's who I grew up. That's how, you know, what? You know, that's, how, that's who I grew up. <laughs> that's how I grew up knowing about John Travolta. That's who John Travolta was to me. I'm always happy that he became a movie star and I like him and stuff. I know he does questionable material. He's not exactly the smartest when it comes to picking his material, but he's a likable, charismatic actor. And, uh, you know, I was always happy when he did well because, you know, Vinnie Barbarino was one of my favorites growing up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's who he was. But the look of the subtle touch of the look of disappointment on his face at seeing his uh, his hero, Tony Monero, with, you know, the the, the grease hairdo, the uh, Rydell High uh, red shirt and the short shorts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's really a great scene. And it's it's I think in a film like this, it would be overlooked because it's a small moment. But to me, that scene says everything about him. His only relationship, really, is with Tony Monero. At the end of the day, and that, that's through his own choice, because there's people around him who want to have an active part in his life. But I think the obsession, he boxes himself in. And I think it, it, this film says a lot about a lot of things without banging you over the head. But I think it talks about the elusiveness um, uh, the elusiveness of uh, sometimes of obsession and, and the the impossibility of obsession when you try to grab something um, of that nature, just the impossibility of it, really. And I think yeah. it's, it's 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 even more brought to the forefront because they're they're living in a in a brutally cut off uh, society where you know people are, are are you know we see there's shortages of food there's shortages of this and he has this flight of fancy that he wants to recreate the uh which is a great there's some great moments with it when he's trying to recreate the the lit f- dance floor the yeah, iconic yeah. lit dance floor with with really the means to not do so forget even if he had the money a lot of it just would come down to the fact that he's not able to there's it just can't happen where he is at the time he lives well the smart thing that the director does there and that the writers do is that they make that lit dance floor they make that his new obsession like yes. he moves on like he can't go see the movie anymore right because now they're showing grease so now he finds a new obsession which in sociopaths sometimes from what i've read obsession is obviously one of their weaknesses but it's also the thing that keeps them going uh and so he becomes obsessed with making this lighted dance floor out of this small stage in this like little restaurant type area Mm-hmm. And uh, that becomes his new obsession. And then you spend a good 40 minutes of the movie with him trying to figure out ways to get more of these glass cubes to uh, kind of like a bottle, kind of like a square bottle uh, uh, to uh, to fix the dance floor that he broke trying to do some <laughs> trying to do some uh, dance moves and then getting very frustrated. 
and stuff. But yeah, you're right. You know, his only obsession, well, his only, I mean, his only obsession, his only relationships with the Tony Monero, but it's not for, I mean, evidently this guy must be like the most attractive guy in this area because and not that these females are great looking, but he, he constantly seems to be walking into situations where he could sleep with, uh, you know, two or three characters in the film. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's really strange. I mean, there's, there's one character who, you know, obviously wants him. And uh, let, me, let me say, we, there is some, even though the violence is not so much on screen, there is some very adult material in this movie. You see fellatio, I mean, you know, or the, the early stages of fellatio. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, the failed rocket launch uh, yeah. of fellatio. Yeah, so the, there's some graphic moments in the film. It deals with sexuality in some harsh ways. Uh, you know, so, you know, obviously this isn't the kind of, kind of movie people would watch with their kids in the room anyway, but just be warned if you are offended by some slightly adult material. It's not a lot of it, but it's, it's there. And uh, so some might be a little offended by that. Obviously, we had another character, too, in the film who was not a fan of the Brazilian, so to speak. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Off in the distance, sir. I see shrubbery. Anyway. <laughs> but uh, either, either way, there, the, the, the obsessive thing, that I, the, 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 the motif that he goes with, I really like. I mean, he goes from this obsession with Tony Monero to the obsession with the glass floor to the obsession with winning this Tony Monero lookalike contest game show. Uh, which is all is all is all pretty great, and I don't want to get into too much about that, but it, it's really great. Um, let me get a couple more notes here. Uh, I really like that the film is about kind of like broken relationships. Yeah, I mean, you don't know anything about Raul and his past. It just kind of comes in at this moment in his life. So it's kind of like a character study. It's got a little bit of that like Black Swan wrestler type uh, behind the seat, behind the back kind of film, uh, uh, cinematography. Yeah, where you're yep. just kind of following the character, so you're really involved in everything he does. Uh, there's some great scenes, actually. That first uh, murder scene we talked about the, where he's watching something from above and then they just kind of follow him down the stairs and follow him outside. So they kind of tie the area together real well that way when you know you follow somebody like that. Uh, there are some really sad moments. I mean, there's a scene where some people are doing some karaoke. People are really kind of enjoying life because they just had a great performance of a little thing they're putting together and stuff. And then that goes sour very quickly. Which, by the way, we didn't talk in our last review. I think I don't think I've ever seen Charles Bronson dance, but he dances in Cabo Blanco. <laughs> yeah, that's right, a couple times. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. <laughs> but that kind of goes sour, and it's it's interesting. There's a scene where some other things go sour, and it involves some defecation, so to speak. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, which I don't know. I, I wouldn't think that was real, but uh, you know, this is the kind of movie where you got to think maybe. <laughs> Maybe Alfredo Castro, you know, ponied one up there, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, we have, you know, in this, I guess, North America, we're used to the Cleveland steamer, but that would be the Santiago Sizzler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Looks like he needs to do something with his diet, though. A little, little creamy, not firm enough there, Alfredo. <laughs> yeah, ironically, Alfredo's is too creamy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Very ironic, actually. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Yeah, but anyway... Uh, I really liked that this film was like a nice character piece. And, it, and and I want to say that that's not everyone's cup of tea. I think if you really get into that, it's really similar to me to, to like a Black Swan or a Wrestler or those kind of films. Just to give some recent stuff, because I've talked about how Aronofsky, Aronofsky's got these character pieces he does lately. And that's what it kind of feels like a little bit. Not to say it's riffing on that or ripping that off, but it does feel like it's a small film, small character piece. Uh, I really liked... Uh, the end of this film I liked a lot. I'm not going to go into detail, but I really, really like the end of the movie. Oh yeah, and uh, it leaves you know it, it leaves no question as to what's going to happen next. But at the same time, it doesn't show you. It doesn't show you anything. 
but it leaves you, you have no doubt what's going to happen next. And it's this obsessive nature of the movie that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta be honest. When this film first started, up until the point where that first thing happened with the cat and stuff like that, I was, I was kind of like, oh, man, I'm afraid this is going to be like, you know, kind of like a dedication to Tony Manero and Saturday Night Fever. It's going to be a little like a Chilean Tarantino-esque type thing. It, I might get a little bored with it. I wasn't in a good mood. My, my son was sick, and I was very sleepy when I started watching it. And but then. Once that first thing happens, boom, it's got me, and it hooked me, and I ended up really liking this film a lot. So I want to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Uh, one thing that, to me, was almost uncanny, I have to wonder if it's uh, intentional. Um, I don't know how much um, Castro, uh, if, he's, if he's like the superstar over there or what it was, but totally, totally looks like uh, a Chilean weathered Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, he, re- he really does. <laughs> which I think isn't uh, in in uh, which which is sort of a meta thing considering the film because doesn't Tony Manero have a poster of Serpico and Bruce Lee up in his uh, in his bedroom? Oh yeah, he's got the Serpico poster up. Yeah. yeah, so I have to wonder if it's a bit meta. But interestingly, Sam, before I forget, they work uh, Lorraine and and Castro worked together on another film that just came out this year that uh, looks like it was at the Venice Film Festival. Um, that looks really fascinating. Instead of during the Pinochet regime, it's during Salvador Allende's uh, rule. And it's, uh, it says in Chile, 1973, during the last days of Allende's presidency, an employee at a morgue's recording office falls for a burlesque dancer who mysteriously disappears. Yeah. So it looks fascinating. We'll have to try to track that one down. Yeah, Lorraine, too, so. Lorraine's only made three films. And uh, I'm definitely going to check out uh, his, other, his other two films, Postmortem and Fuga. Fuga? Fuga? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to look into it. But either way, uh, Alfredo's in—he's uh, in all of them. Oh wow! He's yeah, but what films. a fucking talent this this guy is, man! Uh, both of them, the director and the actor. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But uh, yeah, the film—you know—it it does have that commentary. See, this is the thing. I, I have a, a, a foggy notion of um, of the politics there at the time. Very foggy notion. I'm certainly I couldn't get into a debate with anyone who really knew their 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 stuff but uh, i do have a brief understanding of it uh, i think some of the stuff i would the film would be enriched even more on some of the stuff between the lines it was commenting on but uh, again one of the early signs too of of the pervasiveness of american pop culture uh in society was you know th- this is like a variety show they have this is very popular locally and we can see that leading up to the monero thing that's not its own game show what it is is every week they have a different celebrity impersonator segment of the show and we see which i would have wished they would have at least shown a shot of them um the week prior was chuck norris impersonator week <laughs> Yeah, and that one guy that he's standing next to in the beginning, he really did look like Chuck Norris. <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing, man. I would have loved to have seen that. Um, I just was yeah. I was just reading through the IMDb, and there's a goof in the film that uh, the members-only jacket worn by Rule wasn't introduced. 1982? Yeah, it says 1981 on here. Uh, and, of course, the film takes place in 1978. Got to be careful with your members-only jacket trivia there. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I uh, I did note that, but figured it was you know it was worthy to have it, so I wasn't gonna <laughs> wasn't gonna gripe about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we see immediately that Castro, he's one of these great characters that we see in films where they're a ticking time bomb, and every scene they're in, that on the surface is a is a harmless interaction between two people, uh, becomes very much. Um, a ticking time bomb moment, like right away when he's in the green room or the the corridor for the um, for the film, the TV studio. They say to him, "Occupation." He says, "This," 
And they say, well, <laughs> what do you mean this? He says, show business. And you can see he's so delusional and so obsessed with Tony Monero that, you know, right away we can see that it's going to propel him into a lot of situations that normal people just wouldn't be thrust into. Yeah, he's living for that uh, for that uh, game show or that TV show. He's living for that moment. And uh, that's why the ending was so powerful, I think. It, it is... Uh, He's, that's the thing, man. Like it, it, he's living for that moment amidst kind of a shitty existence. Because I think Lorraine does a great job of coloring the film very drably, a lot of browns, and just there's not much color in the film. And and I think that that certainly is intentional for the time period that those earthy and more muted tones were were popular or prominent then to a degree. And also because of the life that everyone was living then under Pinochet, it was just a fucking shit existence. Right, and right. I think we really see that the color palette and the drabness works well for, for that. So yeah, of course he wants to get out and see the colory dance floor and wear the white suit. Um, that's something that, you know, it seems to be a bit of a unicorn for him. Um, but yeah, I think right away they do a great job of, of making, making us feel uncomfortable around him and, and, um, you know, yeah. So we, you talked about that first scene of violence. It was a pretty, pretty good scene. Uh, what's interesting is we see a few instances in the film when uh, he doesn't really relate to people well unless they serve a purpose for him. But he does seem to have um, a kindness for animals. There's two scenes: one with a cat and one with a dog, where he makes a point to care for them. With he's not worried about reciprocation; he's just looking to to provide them with something. So I thought that was interesting. A small character uh, flourish. Yeah, which is weird because uh, in my experience and what I've read, a lot of sociopaths sometimes you know they they are just as you know they really didn't. I actually thought that scene with the cat was going to go a different way. So, yeah, and and even what, what's interesting is right after there's a scene of violence that he of course commits, we see he goes to like this kind of scrapyard of sorts where he's he's getting all this glass and and the guy has some junkyard dogs, so he's kicking the dogs, and we see that the character actually winces at the dogs being kicked. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. It's it's like one of those situations where you know, and my wife teases me about this sometimes uh, because I love my dog so much. She teases me about, uh, you know, how I relate to animals more than I relate to people sometimes. <laughs> but uh, not to this level, obviously. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I saw that moment too. I saw that wincing, uh, you know, where it's like he doesn't he, he doesn't tolerate that kind of behavior. Like he'll, he'll uh, you know, obviously human life means nothing to him, but for some strange reason, animals uh, touch him in some way. And, uh, yeah, that scene with the cat was really tender. I mean, it was really a tender moment amidst uh, a moment of, uh, so, well, brutality, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Um, I think just, you know, we kind of talked about it a lot, but just that backdrop makes it a very interesting thing where it's a society where a lot of the basic needs of people aren't being met and people try to get this makeshift existence or trying to cobble together a, a normal life amidst the backdrop of a brutal regime that's in power. So I think that just instantly adds an element to the film. We see scenes where he's slinking around in the shadows because of the military, but you see them going by with guns and everything. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, there's a pretty poignant line when he's talking to one thing I, I did find a bit uh, confusing at times was the whole family dynamic. I didn't know if this was initially uh, two young women and the younger boy that they had just kind of shacked up together uh, out of necessity, or then it seemed like it was his girlfriend and her daughter. And then the daughter's boyfriend, a lot of that seemed at times a little bit unclear to me. Yeah. The dynamic in there, I could not, it was a little jumbled. Uh, they almost felt like a, a group of carnies. Does that, does that sound right? To me? 
you know, I, I know this yeah, sounds yeah. terrible, but I mean, that's what they felt like to me. They felt like this kind of like almost like nomadic, even though they don't go anywhere. They felt like this kind of like traveling group of, you know, entertainers. <laughs> but like on the very and, and I, I apologize to anybody who listens to our show that's a carnival worker, but I know that's probably probably not a huge dynamic of our show. But I mean, the impression I get from that type of living is it's a hard lifestyle. Yep. And uh, that's what they felt like to me. They felt like people who are really just barely getting by. Well, but I think that also, I, I for what it, for for all, in all seriousness, I, I was a carny, as yeah. you said, um, but uh, uh, and it can be a rough lifestyle, certainly. Um, yeah, but uh, but I think yeah, just because, again because of the regime, that's part of the reason. But no, I think maybe they're just um, I don't know. I got a vibe that they were just trying to um, have an outlet or, or some sort of distraction from the day to day dreariness of their life. But I could also see yeah that they're entertainers that because of um, Money for for you know what's the first thing that cuts happen with is the arts so yeah yeah um, you know they're kind of shocked up to give themselves an outlet to perform and do things so maybe it was that who knows but I think that's the great thing is it's ambiguous enough but yeah the the family dynamic seemed a bit ambiguous I think in the end I kind of cobbled together that it was uh, uh, a boyfriend like the uh, our principal character uh, was the the boyfriend of the mother who had a daughter and the younger the daughter's boyfriend all kind of shacked up um, did a uh did you get? I guess I got the vibe that it was uh, like a like a dinner playhouse type thing. Yeah, exactly. Because okay. they they all lived in this building that had like a cafe below. Did do you guys so have those? Perform. You have those in Canada? They kind of like uh, playhouses where you can go eat dinner and watch a play. And yeah, there's one here in town. I've never been. Usually, the um, with all due respect to dinner theater performers, yeah. usually it's <laughs> not as uh... we're hitting them all today. Carnies and dinner theater performers. <laughs> <laughs> Our show is going to be taken off the air. Yeah. Like our, our our key demographic, we just shit on all of them. Um, like Tony Monero did, or like Raul did. <laughs> they are the, uh, the the white suit in this instance. Um, oh. But uh, yeah, no, just not as engaging as, as I'd like it to be. But I've always wanted to go to one of those. Um, you know, they were pretty big in the in the eighties. Those murder was how, how did they coin it? Um, like murder mystery with dinner, like it would be like a fucking clue-like atmosphere where you have dinner and someone gets murdered in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always wanted to go to one of those. I've but. actually, uh, I've went. Uh, there's a dinner playhouse here in uh, in uh, Southern Indiana near where I work, and uh, I've went to uh, see a couple things over there. Uh, it's, it's pretty nice, actually. I mean, it's kind of hokey in some ways, but it's pretty nice, you know, because you get the nice buffet. You know, they give you the seafood. You get all kinds of options. You, they bring drinks to your table while you're watching the play. It's it's. It's a pretty nice little setup if you just want to enjoy some meal and watch a performance. Not bad. You know what was entertaining? Then we'll jump off dinner theater because I guess it is kind of dinner theater of sorts. There was a great little play here. Uh, I think it, it toured around the States too. It's called Tony and Tina's Wedding. Oh, yeah. I've heard and of it, but I've never seen it. The interesting thing was the, 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 the hook of it was it's like you were going to an Italian wedding. So, you know, it's pretty broad. And it was a bit embarrassing, to be honest, how broad it was at times. <laughs> but... Um, you would go and, and you'd have like the, the people all dressed up just like you were like a, a cousin going to the wedding. And they'd say, uh-huh. hey, I haven't seen you in a while, blah, blah, blah. And you sit down at the tables and you see the ceremony. And then, of course, the drama happens and the singing and dancing. And you're eating like the Italian uh, you know, uh, plates uh, as you're watching it. So, you know, pretty engaging, pretty fun little night. But um, oh. there's a pretty poignant uh, line that Tony's gr- – Tony, I'm sure he would like to be called that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Castro's character, uh, the, the Tony Monero obsessed lead, his girlfriend says to him, the Tony Monero of the movies will never get old. And uh, I think, again, it just kind of speaks to the elusiveness uh, and, and impossibility of, of what he's chasing. Yeah, yeah. 
No, it's it's a good point. It's it's yeah, totally makes sense. Uh, and even you know, we see how obsessed he is because he's constantly thinking about this to the point of the fact that he can't even get aroused by his girlfriend because he's just obsessed thinking about this. And I don't think there's a homosexual subtext here. I really don't. Uh, I just think it's the obsession with with that lifestyle and that character and that youth that that is rapidly uh, escaping him. Yeah, I think that I think you're right about that because I think you know when we become obsessed with things, like let's say something serious is going on in my life, and I become obsessed with that thing, uh, the idea of intercourse or physical affection really doesn't cross my mind much. And if it did, I don't know if I well, not, I'm <laughs> I probably could perform, but I don't know if I don't know I don't know if uh, you know in my fifties though that might be a different story. You know, I'm 38 now, so you know, still feeling kind of young and spry. A little personal information here for the podcast this morning. But, <laughs> But, but in my fifties, who knows if I become obsessed with something, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't know if that would be important to me anymore because let's be honest, you know, physical relationships can, uh, kind of wane with time because they naturally do with age. I mean, they're still there, but it's just not as, you know, frequent, especially as frequent as we, us men would like it in the early parts of our twenties, which is, <laughs> I don't know, six times a day. <laughs> but I mean, I like that moment actually, because it, it does tell you a lot about the psyche of, uh, of our character. Oh, absolutely, it does. Uh, what a banana hammock he wears in tribute to Tony Manero. <laughs> yeah, he wears a he wears a <laughs> he wears a nude uh, a nude colored uh, men's underwear. I don't, I don't I don't I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> I, is, is that available here in, in North America? We need to we need to look into that. <laughs> we certainly do. Um, the film again. I, I don't claim to be an expert on South American uh, you know politics, especially of the time, but. The film couldn't help but feel as, as a veiled metaphor, a commentary on the whole kind of Pinochet rule. And even to bring it back to, I guess, a cinematic thing, it, in a way, because of the impossibility and desperation of it, almost reminded me a little bit, like a, a small personal version of like a Fitzcarraldo in a way, right? Even down to the white suit he, he wears. Yeah. Yeah. Fitzcarraldo. Obsession. Yeah. It's interesting. Fitzcarraldo, that's a good point because Fitzcarraldo to me is basically the story of a sociopath. Mm-hmm. Who uh, you know becomes so obsessed with this one thing that he'll he'll literally stomp and walk on everything to get it done, including nature. That's right, and, and that's the thing that you, bearing no mind to the cost to anything around you to to you know get done what you want done. Yeah. Uh, the kills. What made them, I think, so effective as we talked about was the sound design. I think it should be said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was ironic as I was writing that uh, Fitzgerald note. I see an, an Aguirre poster in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in there. Yeah, <laughs> very funny. Um, I like as the film progresses, he looks more weathered and more delusional. Yeah, yeah. He really, you know, it's really starting to take a toll on him. Like that's the thing. This film pretty much takes place on. You can tell on like, you know, like to me, it's like the be the beginning of the end for this person. Absolutely. And you're seeing that this moment, this moment in time for him, and uh, that's what I kind of like about it. And what I think what a lot of good low budget independent cinema does, and I don't know how much this movie costs, but I would assume it didn't cost a whole lot because it doesn't look like it's a very expensive movie. They use like three or four locations, and looks like the most production value was in the game show aspect. Um, but I like that you know you're able to kind of come into somebody's life at a certain level, and just tell this chunk of the story, and you're able to leave everything that happened before to the imagination of the viewer and everything that happens after to the imagination of the viewer. So it's, it's pretty interesting the way it's all set up. Oh yeah. 
Um, I like when he finally cobbles together enough of that lit floor that it's it's he lays on it almost like a lover, and yeah. then when he starts <laughs> performing on it. It's so pitiful to see like the one corner of the stage is lit up, and it's yeah. not even in color; it's just lit. Yeah, 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 it is. It is pathetic, but but it's a good moment because it shows that his obsession, one of his obsessions, has come through for him. Yeah, to a degree, because you, you know, in his mind's eye, he is delusional enough that that floor pops with all the colors of Suspiria. Oh, yeah, it's a good point, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, to him, he's he's on he's strutting around there. That that's his moment in his head. The fact that it's only like a, a you know three foot by three foot white lit section that it's not what it is to him. It, it's brilliant Technicolor MGM put this together for him. It's uh, yeah, it's one of those things where when somebody's obsessed with something to them, it's like looking at you know it's like looking at the most beautiful thing in the world where everybody else is like, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? You know, everybody else is like, oh, that because it's not an obsession for like me and you. It's not an obsession. It just looks pathetic. Yes, yes, exactly. Because <laughs> we can look at it objectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I. As the film went on, I started to really feel how oppressive the film felt. Small rooms, low ceilings, which again I think is is intentional based on the oppressive lives that the, the characters lead. Yeah, I agree with that. It does feel kind of claustrophobic in spots, and even when they're in the city, uh, you know, you never really see the horizon. You just see kind of buildings. Yeah, exactly. And junk everywhere. It's kind of like a lot of third world countries. You know, you just see garbage everywhere, stray dogs running around everywhere. Mm-hmm. Kind of a sad existence in a lot of ways. Oh, totally. Uh, there's an interesting masturbation scene. I don't know that I've quite worked out all the dynamics and the politics and the emotional and psychological um, mechanics behind the scene, but it was interesting enough that I was—I have a tenuous understanding of what I felt was being said, but I thought it was a very interesting scene nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Um, film kinda, it, that, the film's kind of similar to... It's weird. It's kind of similar to... Now that I think about it, that masturbation thing, it's kind of similar to me to, uh, you know, Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant a little bit too, which is also a film about obsession in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in this, every character has their own agenda, and we kind of see that in the masturbation scene. Yeah. Every character has their own agenda. Um, people are dreaming and scheming of, of something else beyond what they have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I like that moment when we... Sorry, were you going to say something? No, no, no. I was just saying, I was agreeing with you, actually. I like at the end of the film, near the end of the film, when we finally see the lead up to his his thing. Um, I love that we see the fat, the skinny, the young, and the old, the gray suit that's not white, and the cream suit that's not quite white, and the white suits all together as Tony, Tony Monero's. And I think it really punctuates the absurdity of it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, it was it was great, and, and I think it was just great. That, you know, that, that's really all the notes I have. I think they did a good job taking an I- iconic. Um, Character from American pop culture and American cinema that's very easily identifiable in Tony Monero and, and shaped this film because this this could have played like a film that was almost like a feel good um, you know hard scrabble down on his luck character who who lives his dream but it's not that at all it's a very dark film about a sociopath yeah yeah and uh, again it was a pleasant surprise for me because I thought it was going to go uh, I thought it, it could have been a lot more. Uh, well, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. I guess it could have been a lot more middle of the road. I kind of thought what I was getting into, and then they kind of surprised me and kind of you know put a smile on my face because it was actually a. Uh, it turned out to be a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Possibly, don't know if that's oh, the right yeah. way I'm trying to say, but I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> anyway, okay, so I'll give my make or breaks and stuff like that. I'll have to go. The make or break will have to be that scene with the old lady. Obviously, uh, that scene was pretty. 
pretty harrowing and it kind of i kind of got the idea of what i was in for from that point forward and it really kind of shifts the momentum of the movie a lot uh kind of gives you an idea that everything's a bit unstable and uh a little little crazy so it really kind of makes everything very interesting uh well i just saw katie seagal at the golden globes that woman is aging well i loved her and i'll take her i've said it to you before probably on this show i would have taken Taken to this day, peg over Kelly Bundy any day of the week. Yeah, we've, we've discussed it before. <laughs> that's right, because that, I think spurred on the whole unconventionally attractive woman thing. That's right. Talk about a woman who just yeah, she just she's gorgeous. Yeah, I'm down with the, the Seagal. Yeah, both Seagals, Stephen and her, but for <laughs> <Yeah>. different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Might be a masturbation thing going on over there in Canada today. <laughs> I just hope it's the right Seagal. Yeah. Either way. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, but yeah, the, my, that, that's my make or break. Uh, my my uh, MVT is going to be. I could go. To, I could went with the director because I think he he does a good job of holding it together. But I'm going to go with Castro in this, Alfredo Castro, because I really think he commits to the part. And again, like there's a scene we see with the you know, defecation and stuff. I don't know how committed that was. That could have easily been faked. But you know who knows? I mean, really, I mean, this guy's very committed, it, and it reminded me of like uh, Harvey Keitel and a Bad Lieutenant, or or uh, your. Uh, What's her name? Natalie Portman in Black Swan or Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. These kind of character pieces where an actor commits to the role completely. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like to me. And this one really helps. It really helps that it really tra- it really kind of translates well because I don't, I'm not real familiar with Alfredo Castro. So to me, he is Raul Peralta. He is Tony Manero. So it almost felt like, you know, this is who this guy is. So, I mean, it's a really good acting job and stuff. Sometimes that, that can happen when you're not real familiar with an actor. They kind of become synonymous with the role. Uh... I'll give this film. I think I give this film. Uh, I'll give it an eight out of ten. I think it's really, really solid. Good character piece. If you like stuff like you know, like I like the films I've already mentioned and stuff. I think you'll dig this. Uh, it's very low budget, you know, and, and and stuff. But and but like I said before, there is some very adult material in here. But I think people should definitely check this out. I think you know it. It, it could easily be overlooked. So I'm hoping that by us doing the show, people will go back and check it out. Yeah, uh, I, I do want to say. To clarify, low budget doesn't mean the production values suffer. The film is impeccably impeccably shot, and the production design is perfect. Yes. So it doesn't it doesn't look cheap. It's just you know knowing that it only takes place on three or four different sets, and and it's a smaller character piece. That's Mm -hmm. what you mean in terms of just so people don't think the film looks shoddy. It looks great as far as all the technical and and aesthetic uh, portions go. Yeah, I sometimes forget that when saying low budget, you sometimes can say you know people think that maybe that means it doesn't look good and stuff like that, but that's not the case. I mean, low budget just means for me low budget always just means you know simple story mm-hmm. told well uh i mean obviously there's low budget like bad horror movies shot on vhs <laughs> but that's a different type of low budget <laughs> oh yeah to me that's like no budget <laughs> yes and <laughs> no brains yeah. uh but uh yeah okay for me what made it for me were the scenes where we really see his obsession and how it has dominated his life and made him delusional or or unable to interact with people like the scenes with sex where he's just he can't get a heart on uh to the scenes where just you can see how much he just wants to taste this you know this this kind of polyester you know it just it's it's right there it's it's almost it's palpable for him uh i really like that what made it for me i went the other way i could have went with uh, castro um and it should be said, he was one of the writers on the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Lorraine because I think he, you know, pun intended, reined it all in uh, quite well and made a film that looks great, that that feels great, and um, 
it's a lot darker than than some films, but it, it's I think it's an excellent film. I think he is uh, a very very promising talent. Um, yeah, he's part of that. How, he's part of that new generation, along with that director of Il Devo and stuff. These new directors that are coming around that I think uh, are going to have interesting careers. If they continue to work in film, especially in Chile, which is not a country known for its cinematic output, as we said. Um, he is definitely a person that I would say, based on the strength of this film, I will watch anything he does. I will give the film an eight out of ten as well. I think it's a nice. very interesting nice. film and a film that I would revisit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This one's uh, this one's definitely going to be the one I revisit on occasion because I, I really liked it a lot. It it was similar to like Henry Portrait of Silco and films like that, and that the material's dark, but it's a film that is infinitely interesting to me because I love stories like like these. Oh yeah, me too. All right, so that is our thoughts on Tony Monero. We are going to take a short break and come back and uh, tackle some more listener feedback. So we'll be back right after this. This is Bill from Outside the Cinema. If you're hearing this, then you probably like podcasts. Logical. Flawlessly logical. Well, let me tell you, if you like horror movies, exploitation films, and underground and cult films, why not check out Outside the Cinema? You gotta tell them! www.outsidethecinema.com You're a smart motherfucker. Hey man, I try. stoner rock to add to the feedback section there you might hear a dog barking in the background my wife just came home so nice <laughs> a little labrador action uh <laughs> that sounds kind of perverted for some reason i don't know why that does but <laughs> it certainly does <laughs> not, not that kind of labrador action uh okay so uh, we are back uh we got some feedback to go over we'll uh tackle as many voicemails and obviously emails as we can here so whatever you want to do first here i'm down Let's see. Um, I'm happy to e- – I just had to send a quick email for work before I forgot. And I do want to say as an aside something that you never thought you'd probably hear me talk about. I never thought I'd talk about on the air. But, uh, guys, those of you – does your wife shop at Bath & Body Works? Is that what it's called? Uh, she has. Not recently, really, but she has before. Okay, so we just got the stores uh, up here in Canada yeah. <laughs> fairly recently. So all the women go bananas. You know, it's Bath & Body Works <laughs> is open here. Um, so my wife um, – she bought this this one soap. It's called it's like the pump foam soaps, right? We keep them in our washrooms. Oh yeah, um, and it's one called Sensual Amber. <laughs> and I've got to say, man, 
I intentionally use the washroom upstairs so I can wash my hands with sensual amber soap. I'm smelling my hands like a motherfucker ten times a day. This stuff smells so good. So, nice. guys, if you're white, I just did it right now. It's, nice. it's almost become like a thing. If your wife's shop there or you shop there, get sensual amber hand soap. I think it's I have this world. I think I have sensual amber on VHS with uh, Ginger Lynn in it. Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, Emmanuel, uh, Laura Gemser. <laughs> totally sounds like a 70s porno movie. Sensual Amber. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, but no, I, it's, I know those 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 soaps are nice. I used to make fun of them, but uh, now that we have we've had them now for like five or six years, I couldn't go without them. <laughs> well, you know how it goes, man. We're bare bones. We're animals, right? We're guys. Oh yeah, I'd be we, fine if, with a bar of our spring. You took you literally <laughs> took the words out of my mouth. If it was up to us, we'd have this the sliver of Irish spring or ivory, you know, in the washroom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's it's just the way it goes. But I yeah, just use uh, actually, it's funny. I just used some Bath and Body Works body soap the other day. Uh, and uh, have fallen in love with it. Have since purchased more bottles of it. So, oh, nice. Which one? Uh, Who I, thought we would have went here? By the way, <laughs> <laughs> certainly not me. By the way, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, I'll I'll report back to you when I find to remember. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm gonna find out if they make sensual amber and body soap because. Uh, oh yeah, there you go. I bet they do. I don't know. Fucking fantastic. Do you mind reading the first email? Just because I have to log back in here. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No problem. Uh, here we go. This one's from uh, Mike. Uh, he sends us an email saying, this is Mike from Richmond, Virginia. It's also known as Scott Bakula, Blackula on the boards. Uh, we've known about him for a long time, actually. But I'm a long-time listener, second-time emailer. First off, I'd like to thank Scott from Toronto for uh, my gifts this holiday season. Oh, excuse me. I got the Mighty Peking Man DVD that's been on my to-buy list for quite some time, as well as a few comics, including those comics, was a 1973 issue of Chamber of Chills number 5. Uh, now, I work at a comic shop and have a pretty extensive horror comic collection. I already own most of the 25-issue series of Chamber, but didn't have five until now. Bottom line, the gift was perfect. What's the chances of that happening? Seriously. Uh, and that's me for, uh, for, uh, reflecting on that. Uh, I'm a comic book guy, too, so I'm sitting there thinking, what the? that's never fucking happened to me. <laughs> Next, I want to thank you, too, and the extended family for the hours of pure entertainment you provide me each week, each and every week. You've turned me on to so many films and continue to cover films I know and love. I shit you not. There's never, there's been a Never Too Young to Die poster on my living room wall for years. Also, you just plain turned me on. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Finally. The, <laughs> well, go ahead. It's the sensual amber emitting over the airwaves. <laughs> it's what it is. Finally, I want you to know that since... Uh, I want you to know that as much as I appreciate your knowledge of film, the 80s and 90s wrestling talk is just as welcome. I was born on uh, 31st of March, 1985. I don't think he'll mind me saying all this stuff. The same day watched WrestleMania took place and uh, have been obsessed since. I grew up watching piles and piles of my older brother's wrestling tapes, most of which he gave me, he gave me and I still cherish today. Some of my all-time favorites are. He, he, he's got a hell of a list here, okay? So hang with us here. Uh, Bruiser Brody. The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, woo! Uh, Steve Carino, Terry Bam Bam Gordy, nice. The Great Muta, uh, nice. Dr. Dr. Death Steve Williams, nice. <laughs> Hayabusa, Double A, Arn Anderson, <laughs> sweet. <Wow. laughs> the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, Stan Hansen, Owen Hart, Justin Thunder Liger, and Chris Jericho, and yes, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. <laughs> Dig it. Uh, speaking of which, I just finished watching a new three-disc Macho Man DVD set that the WWE recently released. It contains over 20 matches, spanning from his debut match in 85 to one of the last matches in WCW in 1999. It's as great as it sounds. Okay, this email has gone on way too long. I understand if you don't read it all on the air, but I'm happy to know that you at least read it. Here's a little present for your patience. Hopefully you haven't seen it already. We were aware of it. I'll play a little bit of it here on the air. I guess I should, right? Oh, yes. Let's play a little bit of it here. Let me, let me get it queued up here. Hang on a second. Here we go. 
sour, too sweet to be sour, <laughs> funky like a monkey, ooh yeah. <laughs> oh, it's got a nice bass. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, if you could just see the video. Yes. It sounds like the theme song for a movie with a, a robot with emotions or something. <laughs> like a short circuit type thing. <laughs> it's totally late 80s. Oh, man. So. Okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> that's incredible. Speaking from my heart, I want to thank him for that because a long time ago I meant to drop uh, some of that Macho Man rap on on our show, and he reminded me of it. So that that's incredible stuff. Yeah, that is. You know the thing about Macho Man Randy Savage? It always drove me crazy. I always loved him as a wrestler and stuff, but man, his choice of clothing was some of the most god awful material. <laughs> that those fluorescents he got into in the eighties. Oh. It was bad. I remember I saw him in Pearson International Airport here in Toronto. Um, I was about seven years old, and I'm not lying. He was wearing a full length to the floor white mink coat. <laughs> yeah, he's a flashy guy, you know. Oh yeah, flashy guy. Very odd dude, man. Uh, even when you, they do interviews with him and he talks in his normal voice, he sounds very much like that. Very odd dude. Uh, former baseball player, oddly enough. I heard rumors, and I think I may have brought this up with Loaf or Alex. He's actually from New Brunswick, Canada. Um, I'd heard that. I don't know if it's true because, of course, he bills himself as from Sarasota, Florida. Yes. Um, but his brother had the lamest gimmick in the history of wrestling. <laughs> Leaping Lanny Poffel would recite poetry and throw it out on Frisbees. Worst fucking gimmick in the history oh, of wrestling. Yeah, it was. It was bad. I, I loved Leaping Lanny Poffel, though. It was so bad. <laughs> oh. And he, so he sounded so terrible too when he would talk. Hello, yeah. my name is Leaping Lanny Puffle. Oh, it was so bad. Mushmouth. All right, uh, let me go ahead and read this other one too. Mike sent another one back in. He said, uh, "Sorry that he was a bit intoxicated when he sent the email around two a.m. last night. He did get wasted by himself watching an eight-hour Macho Man DVD. <laughs> it's a sad life I lead." Uh, really, he did. He just goes into more stuff about. I guess I can read the whole thing. Anyway, there was a whole paragraph that I'm pretty sure I typed, but somehow didn't sent. Concerning the Macho Man DVD, some disappointment were the lack of documentary on the disc. Most of the WWE DVD releases contain some sort of feature-length documentary. And then a bunch of matches as extras. Also, I don't know if you watch WWE still today, but the matches on the DVD are hosted by two very young, annoying current WWE personalities, Matt Stryker and Maria. And the Macho King himself did not participate in the production whatsoever. But still, this is the first and maybe only, maybe only Macho Man DVD to be released, so I recommend picking it up. To witness one of the greatest wrestling careers in history. One last thing, I can't believe I forgot Big John Studd as one of my favorites in the previous emails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Those big men. Big John Studd. He's actually in oh. a, couple, a couple movies. Uh, one I remember him in is Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. <laughs> with nice. Mickey, with Mickey Rourke and Don Johnson. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Well, I usually record in white spandex with blue stars on the side of them. So. Nice. You know, let no one say my fashion is influenced by the studded one. Yeah, and I write my reviews on Frisbee's. So there we go. <laughs> nice. It all works out. <laughs> um, do you want me to read the next one? Yeah, sure. It'd be great. It's from a very good friend and uh, part time GGTMC blogger, um, Carl Bresden. And he says, Beautiful Bolo. 
Hello again and happy 2011, gentlemen. It seems like I've fallen into the habit of only sending feedback where martial arts films or wrestling references are concerned. So I mess with a good thing. To piggyback off of Ghetto Tim's recent email, I'd like to offer another guilty pleasure from the esteemed filmography of Bolo Young. In the first 10 minutes of 1991's Breathing Fire, you get Bolo Young in full drag. Lipstick, eyeshadow, wig, oh. dress, heels, and headscarf. Oh. While he only plays a supporting character, his appearance under the guise of the fairer sex is one of the strangest things you'll ever see in cinema. I would implore all GCMC fanatics to seek out the various YouTube clips from Breathing Fire. It's hard to believe, but Bolo and Drag is only a single drop in this film's bucket of insanity. Wow. Wow, we got it. That's got to be on the show. Uh, really enjoyed the recent coverage of Extreme Prejudice and Crippled Avengers, as I love me some Shaw Brothers. Literally only some, because a lot of it is garbage, as Sammy has acknowledged. On the Venom's tip, I'd be curious to know if either of you have seen Gallants, which came out last year. Lo Meng and Quan Tai Chen play prominent roles, and while the film is, a sac- is saccharine in spots, it was great to see these old-timers still tearing it up. Definitely one of the underrated gems of 2010. Keep those vicious cinematic chair shots coming. Until next time, Carl. Nice. Thanks, Carl. We appreciate the... Uh, Carl is... Uh, we don't ever really talk about it on here, but he is uh, one of the, uh, I would say, most... In- uh, he, he covers mostly uh, B-action movies, and he was he has really, really got some interesting insight into that world, to say the least. And an and exhaustive knowledge. I mean, he really knows his stuff. Um, and I'll tell you, who'd ever thought that we would be sending people to look for Bolo Young and Drag, but, you know, Carl's been the one to do it, so... Yeah, I'm getting ready to send you a picture of that right now as we speak. Oh, just give I me can't a- wait to see it. <laughs> Bolo Young is his tough tits and all. It should never be in drag. He would make a terribly ugly woman. It's not It's not the best picture, but it, it is a picture. So this kind of give you an idea of what we're going for here. There we go. I send it to you now. I'll let you look into it. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, thanks, Carl. We appreciate it. And um, guys, make sure you go over to our blog and also Carl's blog and check out some of his writings. Uh, very good stuff. And Gallants, I have not seen. I will see it before I do my year, end of the year list. Um, so yeah, I've been hearing a lot about it lately and it kind of slipped by me uh, when it first came out. So Yes. <laughs> I always know when you get the picture, I can hear the sound. So, <laughs> Ouch. Anyway, uh <laughs> Next uh, voice, our next email. Uh, this is from Jeremy. He says uh, the Czech film Daisies has a scene where the girls set a room on fire from the inside, cook boiled eggs in it, using sewing scissors to cut the eggs into slices and then eat them. Okay, I need to see Daisies now. I don't know. That scene sounds insane in context. <laughs> yeah, because remember we asked if anyone could send in their best boiled egg scenes. I knew at least one person would, so good looking out Jeremy for that. Yes, exactly. Did you see that picture yet? <laughs> Uh, no, my computer is terribly slow. I, <laughs> okay. um, it might be such a high-quality photo the computer can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's coming slowly here. It's. Uh, I think that might be all of our email, actually. Um, let me take is. a look while this uh, sputters along. Computer is slow. That's that. I can take care of that. This is the hard one. Um, oh, I do just want to say, of course, I mentioned Alan mentioning um, Blast Fighter and Hands of Steel on DVD mm-hmm. um, through Another World Entertainment, but also very good friend and the oily maniac, as he's known around these parts, Jay, who is amazing, um, has let us know that it looks like Raiders of Atlantis and most of Bruno Mattei's catalog will be on DVD and or Blu-ray in the upcoming year so <laughs> insane insane that's all i gotta say i said it to you off the air i just started laughing when you said bruno mateo on blu-ray 
It's incredible. It really <laughs> is. I mean, I'd be happy with DVDs of them. Um, if I, you know, who would have thought in a period of like two weeks we would have heard Hands of Steel, Blast Fighter, Raiders of Atlantis, and Bruno Mattei's catalog on legit DVD? I mean, I mean, I never would have imagined that. I mean, I can. No, it's amazing. I'm a happy man. It's amazing. All right, we'll get into some uh, voicemail while you're waiting for that picture to download there. We'll uh, let's get going on it here. Here we go. First one. Super, super body shark. He's a friend to a little kid. Super, super body shark. He's got a grandfather's soul. And he hangs out with the little kid. And just remember, no one, but no one should ever think Nicolas Cage is cool. <laughs> this is Tom. Tom there from Better in the Dark. <laughs> oh my God, what a photo this is. <laughs> oh, it's hideous. <laughs> oh, what a terribly ugly woman. <laughs> yeah, there's been, you know, several people dressing up in drag for a joke and everything else, but that's no joke. That's disgusting. Yay. <laughs> Bolo. Wow. Bolo never really known for his bending looks. Thanks, Tom, for the voice. Oh, Emily popping in there out of nowhere. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Bolo, not known for stuff, but thanks, Tom, for the uh, little serenade there. <laughs> yes, no, thank you. I, I was blindsided by Bolo and Drag, which you'll understand, I'm sure, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Tom. Here we go. It's funny that they sell that Breathing Fire film. as He told us he's not really in it, but they sell that as a Bolo Young film. He's like prominent on the poster. If you look up some images and stuff for Breathing Fire, it's like Bolo Young, and then there's like nobody else on the poster for it. It's the only way they sell films like that. Probably was right after, uh, well, he got really popular in the States after uh, Bloodsport, I guess, right? Yeah, that was his big one as far as really popping with the, the uh, direct-to-video market as far as I know, unless Carl, of course, could correct me uh, on that. Although he's been around forever. He was in Enter the Dragon, and yep. he's been in all kinds of stuff, but you know, he didn't really, I think, really pop in the States until his uh, bad guy role in Bloodsport. Yeah, he'd been working in Hong Kong since, as far as I know, maybe even further, but early 70s in bit parts until mid-70s and late 70s got some prominent stuff. Yep. All right, so next voicemail comes Emily. Hey, gents, it's Emily. Welcome back, Sammy. Um, mostly I wanted to call to agree with you and then disagree with you. I agree on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I think it's a terrible, like, childlike slapstick movie, and I don't find it funny at all. I find it annoying. However, I totally disagree on The Fighter. I saw it a few weeks ago, um, and I agree it's really well acted. I think um, the women and Christian Bale are fantastic, but it just felt so traditional cookie cutter. I knew exactly where it was going. It went there. Um, the fight scenes brought nothing new whatsoever. And you're watching it. To me, you can't not compare it to a wrestler. And I think, maybe I misheard, but I think Will even at one point said Mickey Rourke instead of Mark Wahlberg. Um, and you think of like the, the scenes of the wrestler where you felt that violence. And in this one, I was watching ESPN. I was watching boxing. And that was it. And every fight had the same formula, and it all happened the same. So, I don't know. It was good. It was, you know, something that I can recommend. But it, uh, if, to me, if, if this film, not so much the performances, but if the film gets put in Best Picture and Best Director, I would actually be angry. But um, I keep things very personally, so that's that. Okay, um, <laughs> I'll go. Bye. All right, all right. So you know, some disagreement on the fighter. I, I personally, I think the fighter would have been almost a perfect film if they wouldn't put any fight scenes in it because I don't think the fight scenes are anywhere near important in the fighter. I think it's all about the interaction between Bale Wahlberg and his family. So I think the fight, the fighting in the film, is just background fodder. 
And uh, don't think that I, I also agree. I don't think the fights are shot very well. But a lot of times when you do films on real fighters, I mean, you're really kind of at the mercy of the actual fights. You can't really go too far outside the box. Like in Raging Bull, they did that, but then they would Scorsese would go in and do animal noises and things like that to kind of get a little bit of style in there. And, and yeah, you can do it better. But I don't know if David O. Russell's considered a stylist, in my opinion. Do you think so? Are you there? Did you turn down? <laughs> Sorry, I did turn down. I was talking. Yeah, not particularly a stylist, but um, I would agree with that. The fights really aren't the point of the film. I do think the more I think about it, it is a very conventional film by mm-hmm. the numbers, and it is about the performances versus the direction potentially, but um, I do maintain that it, it's a rock-solid film with very good performances uniformly. And, you know, you, you have to credit the director to a degree for that because um, even with A-list actors in terms of talent, um, you need to get this performance out of them. And maybe you get one or two actors who can bring it out in themselves. But to consistently get uniformly great performances from everyone he did in that film, I think is definitely at least a mark of the director's hand to a degree. And I think Amy Adams is the only one that can compete with Natalie Portman this year as far as best actress. I really think that those two um, those two are the best performances I've seen for me. She was great. Uh, she's, she doesn't touch... Uh, uh, Natalie Portman for me. I mean, I know the Portman one's a lot more showy, mm-hmm. but uh, I yeah, to me it's it's just she towers over everyone this year. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it is definitely about the relationships, not so much about the the fighting. Uh, I kind of wish they wouldn't just not even put the fighting in there in retrospect. But uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, the film. But I can see that other side too, though. Uh, okay, uh, next voicemail. Here we go. Gents, it's Scott in Toronto calling a little bit behind in shows, just getting caught up after Christmas. Uh, Will, I'm really glad that you're liking that Bedecker stuff. You know, I I don't think it's that revolutionary, but, uh, you know, these are movies that you don't don't see much uh, like that today. They're beautifully shot, crisp, you know, and uh, tell a story in a relatively uh, decent amount of time. Really interested to hear what you guys think, and maybe maybe you could do a sh- show on one of those Bedecker films. But uh, one in particular is the decision at sundown. Uh, it may not be as good as some of the others, sort of from an excitement uh, point of view, but I probably think it's the most interesting because it strikes me as being very different in tone than the typical '50s western. It's got kind of a sinister and claustrophobic feel to it. And I really think, you know, Randolph Scott's character in that one, it's sort of uh, out of character for him as compared to the others. So that, that that's one to check out for sure. I'm sure you'll get to it eventually. Also wanted to comment on uh, Will and Rupert's conversation on uh, Patton Oswalt's uh, article. I, I don't know. I, I haven't heard the most recent show to see if other people have provided feedback. But I just want to say I really like where you guys uh, were coming from here. I, I totally agree with you. I think today's world is great. Uh, the more art we can digest, the more the more we learn. You know, I, I think it's really cynical to say, you know, there's just all these people doing uh, lazy stuff, regurgitating. Because sure, you know, there's a few dorks on YouTube, you know, mashing up videos, you know, <laughs> putting Scarface and Dirty Dancing together or whatnot. He's, but I don't think that's really representative. He's of talking about me, damn it. Uh, there's really been, never been a better time to appreciate film. Or, or even music, I guess. Yeah. Amen. Uh, and, and I don't really care if it takes you 10 years to watch all of Peckinpah films or, 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 or three days. You know, you've seen them. You have thoughts on them. That's enough. It's about watching the movies and discussing them, you know. They, this is a terrific world for that. Uh, tape trading and fanzines might have been really cool. But, uh, you know, I think the Internet has really, I hate to say it, but brought people together. You know, um, he probably thinks, Oswald probably thinks we're all sitting in our basements, our parents' basements, no less, uh, 
uh, watching movies on our MacBooks. Uh, but, you know, it got uh, three of us, Will and uh, Chris and me, together to watch 2001 on a big screen. Amen. And we weren't alone. There were dozens and dozens of people there. I, I bumped into a friend of mine. There's an appetite for this stuff. Anyone that's gone to TIFF or any similar festival knows that there's a huge appetite, a huge appetite for the new art. People want to see new film. They want to see what directors are doing next. Uh and there's a desire to go see it with other people and to talk about it afterwards uh, in lineups for the next movie. Uh, and it's not like nothing new is being produced. I think there's as much good stuff today as there's ever been. And uh, we're seeing stuff from around the world almost instantly. We weren't able to do that before. There is a lot of path. There's a lot of crap out there, but there always has been. It's just marketed better and makes a bit more money. But the other stuff is there. It's making enough money to get directors and producers cranking them out as well. I'm thankful that I can watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. I, you know, I don't have to sit around waiting for the late, late, late show on Saturday nights or waiting for a tape to arrive in the mail or for my rep theater to finally show what I want to see. Great world we live in. Hope others uh, see some positive in it. Uh, Nostalgia is wonderful too, but uh, you need a bit of both. So that's the end of my rant. Uh, hopefully that's ooh, right around three minutes. <laughs> Take care, guys, and I will uh, talk to you soon. Cheers. All right, that is Scott, good friend from uh, Toronto, uh, also a fellow podcaster with uh, Mary with Clickers. Check that show out. Uh, I like that show quite a bit, actually. I don't know yeah. if I've, I don't know if I've told you. I don't think I have actually have talked to you about it and stuff, but I really like that show. It's a husband and wife show, and they discuss movies and stuff, and I really like it, man. Yeah, no, it is good, man. He's working hard on, on maintaining a good quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting thing to do with uh, an insider-outsider thing in terms of films and different tastes. Yeah. And something that a lot of us go through with husbands and wives. So I would highly recommend you check them out. Um, very great friend, passionate cinephile, and all-around wonderful guy. A passionate uh, comic book dude. High oh, five, yeah. Scott, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm definitely next time I come up, and uh, it'll be. I'll be up there this September, no doubt about it. Uh, I got to meet. You know. Chris and, and Scott face to face, give some bro oh, yeah. get some bro hugs going. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to say he talked about Dirty Dancing and Scarface being edited together. I would rather see Cruising and Dirty Dancing edited together. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> you know he brings. I didn't really chime in on the Patton Oswalt thing. My problem with the Patton Oswalt thing was I understand where he's coming from, but I don't. It, there's it's a little bit of sour milk in my opinion oh, from Patton sour Oswalt. Sour grapes, totally. Uh, you know, it's like you know to me. Everything should be available to everybody. I think the thing that drives me crazy as a geek of anything or a fan of anything is that stuff isn't available. I don't think that's that's fair to people who love things. Uh, yeah, there's something to be said for hunting stuff down and, and lack of accessibility and making stuff important. But really all that does to me is, is irritate people. I think in this day and age when we can all share and the world is a much smaller place because of the Internet and things like that. I mean, look at all of us. All of us are, are friends. What's the chances we would all become friends without the Internet? I mean, it's slim to none, right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when I came to Ontario and become friends with you on a whim, <laughs> don't think. Well, don't how, how would you have met me? That's the thing. It, I, I, I'll be honest. I think I, I've noticed Patton Oswalt, and hey, he likes a lot of the stuff we like, but I've noticed in the past he's put stuff out there that seems like he puts it out there only to be conversation pieces mm-hmm. yeah. amongst our community. And, and no discredit to him if, if there is more sincerity to it. Like I said, he likes a lot of the stuff we like. So good on him for putting it out there as someone who's got a bit more popularity in the mainstream. But I just feel like, yeah, it is total sour grapes. And you, you nailed it. Everything should be available to everyone. My cinematic education wouldn't be further along. Yours wouldn't be. And everyone who listens to our show and is part of our community and the bigger community of Palaver uh, wouldn't have 
discovered all the films we've discovered because of each other without technology. Yes. So it's as simple as that. It is. And uh, there is something to be said for that. I was a tape trader. I know it was pretty great. But uh, at the same time, it was also pretty frustrating. I'll be honest with you right now. But uh, I have some fond memories of the tape trading days. But uh, they, they're, they're few and far between. Uh, but, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, I like it a lot more. It's a lot nicer to be able to speak about these films with people. I mean, let's be honest. I didn't think 10 years ago I would be recording a conversation about Bruno Mattei on Blu-ray or Hands of Steel coming out on DVD proper. So there you go. <laughs> but thanks, Scott, for the uh, voicemail. We appreciate it as always. Uh, here we go. We got another one. This is from Josh from over at Very Celluloid. Hey, guys. This is Josh from V Cinema and VeriedCelluloid.net. Uh, I just wanted to call in. Say great episode. Loved your Crippled Avengers review. Also, wanted to say I agree wholeheartedly on how easy it is to get burnt out on the kung fu genre. This past December on Varied Celluloid, I went through 19 different films for our kung fu Christmas spectacular. Oh. <laughs> Ouch! And you know, afterward, I was completely and utterly burnt out. <laughs> I will say that I'm a bit of a Five Deadly Venoms apologist even though I know that by today's definition and by even a lot of old-school kung fu films, it's not the most action-packed in the world. But I do love the movie. It's still one of my favorites, not just because it was an introduction for me to old-school kung fu films, but uh, I think it's one of Chang Chae's best. I think it's one of the few films that he actually handles uh, a complicated story and does it justice. Normally, if you watch a lot of his films, you'll see in stuff like Ten Tigers from Kwang Tung and Life Gamble and various other movies, when he gets more than, you know, five or so characters in a story, he seems to lose the plot and overcomplicates things. But with Five Deadly Venoms, it's just, for me, the right mix of, you know, action and that uh, complicated plotting and it's easy to keep up with the characters there's not so much you know you know Qing resistant stuff and you know having a you know a concept of Chinese history which always helps with these films but you know you don't really have to have that with Five Deadly Venoms and also you know Chang Che was kind of a lover of all things gimmicky and Five Deadly Venoms definitely was one of his you know best and it is probably one of Nai Kuang's best as well. Mm. Crippled Avengers is, you know, it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite kung fu films of all time. Uh, I discovered it under the name of Crippled Avengers, and it's still hard for me to get used to calling it Return of the Five Deadly Venoms because it's just a name created by, you know, distributors trying to market off of the uh, popularity of the original film. The metal arm that Lu Feng actually uses in the film was also used in the other uh, Chang Che title, Life Gamble. So, you know, nice piece of trivia. If you watch that film, you'll be surprised to see Lu Feng show up once again with, uh, you know, arm chopped off and <laughs> shooting razors or whatever it is out of his arm. Uh, Sun Chun, who uh, plays the legless man in Crippled Avengers, he was a master of Taekwondo which is actually a Korean martial art and has an emphasis on kicking. So he always, you know, ended up in some kind of role that kind of marketed off of that and did a lot of kicking. He was kicking the hoops and such and Crippled Avengers, kicking plates and like, Five Deadly Venoms and, you know, almost every movie he was in, he did something like that. That's about it. I just want to say love the God of Gamblers reference. That was awesome. <laughs> 
And thanks for introducing me to Undefeatable. That may have been my film of 2010. <laughs> nice. Epic. <laughs> thanks. Oh, it's cut off there. No, thanks, Josh. We, you know, those guys over at V Cinema, they really, really, really know their Asian cinema. So I'm always happy when they chime in with, uh, you know, we had John chime in with uh, some uh, Kurosawa feedback, and then Josh always chimes in with some, some Kung Fu feedback and stuff. So they always give us a lot of info, you know? Yeah, what's cool about their show, and I went back and listened to their Crippled Avengers review. I was a few episodes behind on their show. Um, what's great about them is they have the three guys. They have Rufus, um, John, and Josh. John is the Japanese expert. Um, Rufus is the South Korean expert. And then, of course, Josh uh, is the uh, Hong Kong or Chinese expert. So it's really cool they can bring that together. And i got to say, Josh does, Josh should have dubbed, should be dubbing a lot of the films for the uh, – the Dragon Dynasty, because he's done a few kind of just sentences he's thrown out in dub speak mm-hmm. um, yeah. that have been just hilarious uh, on their show. So, yeah, <laughs> thanks for that, man. And, um, yeah, uh, check out V Cinema. Great, great uh, Asian cinema podcast. Yes, indeed. All right, uh, next voicemail. We're going to tear through some of these ones we've had for a while, so here we go. Gentlemen. <laughs> we might know this guy. This is Dr. Zom. <laughs> going on about uh, uh, 29, 30 hours, no sleep, and uh, what is, <laughs> I might fall asleep listening to this voicemail, though. <laughs> MTV, which is damn near impossible to watch. <laughs> Do they have to have commercials? I mean, most uh, commercials are two minutes and, uh, you know minutes and two seconds or something like that on mtv the shows are two minutes and two seconds and the commercials are 20 minutes <laughs> and anyway uh watched uh someone behind the door from 1971 oh nice bronson film with charles bronson and uh, Anthony Perkins, Joe Ireland. That's a weird cast. It's a good movie. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a, quite a while. It was a an old staple from uh, my college years uh, when video stores first started cropping up just about everywhere. And uh, I picked this one up. Uh, seems like back then um, there was a hell of a lot more good stuff out. Um. It just seemed like back then uh, just about everything that you could think of was on VHS. But anyway, I digress. This was a good movie. Uh, not uh, your typical Bronson. Uh, vigilante, justice, shoot, kill, 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 shoot, shoot, kill, kill, shoot, kill. Um, it's a uh, kind of a, like uh, I don't know, like a psychological thriller maybe. Uh, but um, uh, Bronson is a uh, an amnesiac uh, who is brought to the hospital uh, in a stupor, which he plays very well. And uh, I'm not even joking there. I mean, uh, I thought he did a pretty good job, as, you know, all the way around acting in this movie. Anthony Perkins was good. Uh, he was the doctor that was, uh, in some ways, it was almost uh, uh, sliding towards almost a horror kind of a thing, because Anthony Perkins was sort of like a, uh, not a mad scientist, but a mad doctor. 
um, and he uh, you, uh, he's a, a neurosurgeon or something like that, and he uses uh, his knowledge and abilities to manipulate Chalel's Bronson into uh, doing his bidding. But anyway, uh, Bronson uh, has, I think, uh, Sammy or somebody was saying not too long ago, uh, you know, the guy, uh, even though he was up there in age in this movie, you know, 1971, he wasn't super old. He wasn't puffy, puffy catfish face. Mm. But, uh, you know, he just looked like he was etched out of stone. And, uh, you know, Charles Bronson movies, you know, known for having some uh, rape scenes in them. Well, in this movie... Charles Bronson actually gets to rape his own wife, Jill Ireland. Wow. <laughs> and that's not funny. But, uh, you know. Well, we left. Anyway, um, I'm just uh, resting my brain. Um, it's in the jar in the refrigerator. What? That's about it. What? Uh, oh, and as a, uh, a double bill, I did watch uh, some... Uh, uh, of behind the green door. Ooh. This was someone behind the nice. door, behind the green door <laughs> with Marilyn Chambers. Oh yes, and uh, Oakland Raiders legend Derry uh, football player, defensive, uh, I think tackle or defensive end Ben Davidson. Yes. Anyway, that's a that's a different kind of movie. <laughs> uh, that's about it for now. This is on. Hopefully, Zom got some rest in the interim there. <laughs> Yeah, he was able to take his brain out of the fridge and put it back in the old melon. Yeah, the uh, someone behind the door. I like that film. It's a little slow moving and stuff, but it is interesting and uh, another one of those films that kind of is different for Bronson and that he. It's almost like a Frankenstein story in some ways. So interesting. Never seen it. Never heard of it. It's pretty good. All right. Uh, next voicemail. Let's get another one going to Zom again. Gentlemen, this is the new and refreshed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some sleep. There we go. Hey, I just wanted to uh, call after a uh, babbling, sleepless uh, feedback there a little, uh, I don't know, seven, eight hours ago, um, and say that it was good to see the old magic back, the old team of Willie and the Samurai. <laughs> Nobody does it better. You guys are the Nobody does it better Of Podcasting These sounds Martin and Lewis Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis oh. I mean Stan Martin and Sid Lewis <laughs> That work down at the uh, convenience store But they're pretty funny So you know That's pretty <laughs> And I also wanted to say um, My condolences To Large William um, I just saw The previews to the new Vince Vaughn, uh, Kevin James movie, and also to the new Ashton Kutcher and uh, Natalie Portman movie. And, um, yeah, I'm sorry, Big Willie. I'm sorry because I know that one of these days you're going to be watching the... Fucking <laughs> 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 horrible, Daddy! <laughs> Have a great day, guys. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the well, you know, that's just that's married life, man. You know, you got to you got to you got to pony up and watch some bad cinema sometimes. You do, but my wife, I've never had to watch a Kevin James film. Uh, his name is really beyond synonymous with the worst 
film in the land. Like he's replaced, he snatched the crown from Eddie Murphy and Rob Schneider. I think. Yeah, he's he's a uh, garbage. He's made some junk. Uh, you know, truly a shame because I actually think Kevin James is kind of funny. But he's, King of Hearts isn't a bad TV show, man. Uh, uh, Leah Remini's hot, and you know they got a good chemistry. Yeah, I actually think he's a pretty funny guy. But uh, yeah, he's made some bad uh, cinematic decisions. So wait, you know. What are you going to do? And it seems like he's kind of, you know, he's buddy-buddy with Adam Sandler, so it looks like he's going to be in that world for quite some time. And that's fine. I won't have to watch that. I, you know, my wife's pretty cool, man. I get to, I have to watch the odd one, but mostly it's not stuff that bad. Like, I've never had to watch Paul Blart. Even that, I mean, she has no desire to even watch that rubbish, so. <laughs> yeah. Paul Blart's pretty bad. Ugh. I only watched like 10 minutes of it. I was like, woo, turn this off. Yeah, was, that movie to me was like that name equaled everything that was wrong with, <laughs> with, with film and the culture we live in. It was, uh, I think, number one like two weeks in a row or something. Yeah, it's crazy. That was number one for a while, actually. Maybe longer. I didn't want to say longer because I was embarrassed to be a member of the human race <laughs> yeah. when I yeah, said that. It's one of those. All right. Uh, yeah, it is good to be back. But please, Zom, we are Daryl and John, not That's Steve right. and Sid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next voicemail. Howdy, fellers. Positive Pat here. Let you know I have a new listener. It's no joke. Enjoy the show. <laughs> I'll make noises now. Positive Pat calling back. So there we go. <laughs> Again with that uh, Caucasian sounding Ozark gospel choir uh, chant. I, I wonder what that is. It's, it's like his theme music. No idea, actually. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. Uh, I don't really know if I have a lot to add to that, but thanks for being a listener, Positive Pat. Yes, and we're happy to get you through your workday, man. That's, uh, that's always good. Workdays can drag. So if we can help it to go quicker, then good on us. And yep. uh, thanks for listening. All right, next voicemail. Hey, guys, Scott in Toronto calling. Um, Will had, uh, I think it was Will had mentioned he's trying to get through some Nicholas Ray movies this this year. And the one I've watched recently that I'd recommend, not a strong, strong recommendation. I think it's very highly regarded. I thought it was very good, but not quite great. It's called uh, On Dangerous Ground. And it stars uh, Robert Ryan and Ida Lupino. Uh, I, think, I think it's from 51, 52, something like that. And uh, it's interesting, especially because Ryan uh, plays this very uh, hard-assed cop, sort of a, a dirty, hairy prototype, and I think that really probably stood out for the time. Anyway, so you may want to check that one out on Dangerous Ground. I think it's very widely available. And uh, you guys are also talking about uh, Jane Russell and uh, her being teamed up with uh, Mitchum, another... Another good uh, Russell Mitchum flick. It's called um, 
His Kind of Woman, and it's an RKO movie from, again, I think 51 or 52. And it's a really, really fun movie. Uh, I highly recommend this one, in particular because it's got Vincent Price, and I, I love Vincent Price, and in this one, he's really playing against type as sort of a macho uh, Hollywood star who's also a big game hunter. Uh, you know, maybe more of a William Holden type, but it's 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 Vincent Price doing it, so it's 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 quite funny. I mean, he's entertaining, but uh, he never quite comes across as a macho big game hunter. Anyway, it's called <laughs> yeah. His Kind of Woman, and uh, again, I think that one is uh, is pretty easy to get your hands on. So uh, great stuff lately. And before I sound uh, too much more like Robert Osborne and stuck in uh, stuck in the <laughs> studios, I'm going to get the hell out of here. Okay. Cheers. Take care. <laughs> giving us some uh, cinematic knowledge. Yeah, that's great stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Scott. Well, uh, look. Uh, well, I don't. I, I've never seen that film, so I'm gonna have to check out. Check it out. Yeah. No, I looked up a couple of the films he'd mentioned. Adrian um, Russell. What was that one? Uh, he just mentioned. I looked it up when he when I first heard the voicemail. Uh, his was it his girl, or uh, I can't remember now. I looked it up. I'm gonna have to. You know what? Fuck. Scott, send me an email. Uh, fuck. That's terrible. I forgot already. <laughs> send me an email if you could. I'm gonna try to track it down. It wasn't on Netflix. I checked when you first sent in the voicemail uh, to no avail. So. All right. We only got a few more to get through here. So let's uh, go with this next one here. Hey, a big will in the samurai. It's Tom DJ calling you straight out of Brooklyn from Better in the Dark Laboratories. I'm sitting here watching uh, uh, Sam's uh, Steelers dismantling the Ravens. And uh, it occurred to me I want to talk to you briefly about your most recent episode. Not because of the films you covered, per se, but because at the end you announced that this coming week you're going to be covering the Charles Bronson film Cabo Blanco and... Thank you, because I was trying to, dis- we were discussing Charles Bronson, as you know, on a recent episode of Better in the Dark, and I wanted to point to Cabo Blanco as the last film I think that Bronson was really, truly engaged in. I, I think my theory has always been uh, that-, that Bronson was a person who had a great deal of passion for acting, but he was not blessed with the tools. That you know, because he had that like strange voice and and and, and such, it, it made it difficult for him to really be recognized as the actor that he was capable of being. And I think also beyond a certain point, he just gave up and he said, "Okay, fine." That's when he went and, and signed with uh, Golden Globus and just did that that run, that constant run of cookie cutter action films that uh, one looked almost like any other. But I, I always thought that Cabo Blanco was like the one where he was at his most in touch with the, the kind of acting he wanted to do. I think he genuinely loved that project, and he loved uh, being in it, and it shows so much in that film. And I loved it, and for the life of me, when we were talking about it, I could not remember the name, and now I remember it thanks to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you say about it, because I, I really enjoyed it when I saw it way back when in the... the Mists of the, the top of the eighties when uh, it came out, but I hope you guys, you know, do it justice as I know you will. I will talk to you again later. Peace. Yeah, I think we did it justice. I mean, it's uh, an above average Charles Bronson flick. There you go, and it's 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 good. Seek it out. It's good. 
Yeah, okay. Not a whole lot more tech. A lot of the stuff there with the Canon films and stuff like that, we could talk about that for ages, and we already have, so I won't address that. Tom called back recently. Here we go. Sam, Will, it's uh, Tom calling you straight out of Brooklyn. I think you know what this is about. <laughs> uh, here it is. It's Sunday at nine uh, 9.30. Uh, I wanted to first congratulate the uh, both of you on advancing into the championship round of the, uh, the football season. Uh, I was rooting. I was actually, I was at a bar um, doing karaoke, but I was kept an eye on that Falcons uh, <laughs> uh, Packers game for you, Will, because I was really <laughs> hoping you would make it through. Um, but it looks like one way or the other, all of our teams are going to be involved, it looks like. It's mm-hmm. going to be really cool. Um, I don't know if I would want to. I have to check with Derek, because Derek was not happy the last time we made a bet, but I have to check with him <laughs> to see if we want to renew the great uh, podcast challenge of 2010. So um, I will get back to you, but once again, I'm very happy, and I hope you understand, Sammy, that it's nothing personal when we come for you. What? It just, just isn't. Because I have a feeling it just, the Rex Ryan Revenge Tour ain't, ain't slowing down anytime soon. But I love you both, and it's not going to change my feelings about the two of you any any differently, no matter who wins. Exactly. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I'm willing. I know uh, Will doesn't have a problem with it either, so either way. But, uh, yeah, it is interesting that all three of us uh, who enjoy the football, uh, all three of our teams are still in there. It's very interesting to me. I almost feel bad mentioning one of our and, sister shows yeah. not having their team in it as a result of gangrene. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the interesting thing is, is that all three of our teams are all playing extremely well, too. That's the, the scary part. I don't really know who is going to win the Jets-Steelers game. And uh, honestly, I got a feeling that the Packers might win the Bears game because they're just playing better right now. Yeah, I, I said to you, the Bears are ugly with all due respect to our Midwest Bears fans or Bears fans abroad. I just don't think they're as good as their record. Um but I know, as I said to you on the phone, it's one of those things where I feel like the Packers are the better team and they should win, but somehow they'll fuck it up and <laughs> we're left standing at the altar again, heartbroken with uh, <laughs> cheese head in hand. Yeah, yeah. That Bears team reminds me of that Giants team that won the Super Bowl against the Patriots a few years back. I could see that. Yep. Well, they play football like that and stuff. Yeah. All right. So our last voicemail is... Uh, from Rupert. He sent in his pick. He's going to be back on the show next week, and uh, he asked me if he should send his pick in. I said, yeah, sure, because I didn't know what he was going to pick exactly, so I'll play it here, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about what I'm going to pick later on after we do our pleasantries and stuff, so here we go. Hey, Jens, it's Rupert. Uh, just uh, sitting here with my little girl uh, watching a movie. We're watching uh, Open Season Part 2. She picked it. Um, <laughs> anyway, I wanted to call my pick for... Uh, our show when I'm on next, and I think uh, it was a tough choice. I had a few that I was batting around, but I think I'm going to go with my bodyguard, nice. which is uh, a favorite of mine, very nostalgic in a lot of ways. So I'm curious, uh, I think both of you guys have seen it, but uh, you know what your take on it now will be. Um, I don't know, I have a lot of affection for it. But um, anyway, that's it. Uh, I look forward to talking to you guys about the movie. Okay, bye. All right, now I have seen uh, my bodyguard. Uh, well, uh, we were talking the other night. Have you seen it? I don't know if you've seen it actually. Have you? No, pretty sure I haven't. Unless when I watch it, uh, it comes to me. But I'm almost certain I've not seen it. 
Okay. All right. So that's going to be interesting to talk about. Be uh, very interesting to talk about, actually, because I have a lot of nostalgic feelings for it, too. It was one of, it was one of the movies when we first got cable television in my house. Uh, it was one of the first movies me and my brother would watch over and over and over again. I mean, it was up there with, like, Little Darlings or whatever that uh, that other Matt Dillon film is. There was a lot of Matt Dillon on our cable TV when we, me and my brother were growing up. <laughs> What was that other one, the Coca-Cola Kid? Uh, uh, that's Eric Roberts there. So okay, what am I mixing? There's one, uh, another Matt Dillon one where he's on the beach. He uh, oh, is that the Fl- Flamingo Kid? Flamingo Kid, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, of. that was on a lot too. We watched that one a lot. We watched Tex a lot. Outsiders, Rumblefish. Oh yeah, a lot of Matt. Matt Dillon is a huge part of my childhood. Huge yep. part. So I wish he worked more today, man. Great actor. Yeah, he is great. Uh, all right, so that is what we're going to be doing on Roopside. And here after we do our pleasantries, I'll kind of drop the bomb that is my pick on uh, on the gents. Uh, so we'll get to that. But uh, thanks for calling in, Roop. Uh, Will, you want to go through the pleasantries? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, here it is. Almost lost it. Uh, as I said before, um, Kringle, if anyone has still not gotten their gift, send me an email. I think most of you would have gotten it by now. I mean, it's been you know well over a month. Uh, so anyway, uh, and also, as I mentioned earlier, blogs. I'm going to stop mentioning blogs that haven't blogged in a couple months. If you start blogging again, men- uh, email the show, and I'd be happy to mention you again. Um, it's just, you know, it's such a lengthy list, uh, as everyone knows, that I don't want to be mentioning things that... Yes. Get out of hand. So, sister shows, OTC, Show Show, check them out, as well as all of our family and friends over at palaver.com. Check out, of course, Hammocus, um, which is, of course, all things Hammer, Amicus, and any tenuous links in between. Uh, Paleo Cinema, uh, Action Attraction, Better in the Dark, Married with Clickers, and, of course, V Cinema. Uh, Paracinema.net, VGGTMC.blogspot.com, and, of course, these are all .blogspot.com. Uh, Rupert Pupkin Speaks, Deadly Doll's House, Chuck Norris Ate My Baby, um, The Lightning Bug's Lair, Fist of B-List, Stinking Paws, Scared Shift List in Shasta, nice. just S-H-A-S-T-A, and Moon in the Gutter. Uh, check out CDB, which is Cinema-DE-Bazaar, uh, promo code Gentlemen, Gentlemen, 10% off your orders that way, and we will get back to them next week. Um, omg-entertainment.com of course for very good friend Martin's uh, store there's a lot of excellent uh, product he has over there uh, promo code is ggtmc10 for 10% off your orders and we are still waiting to get the rest of our pink aga and camera obscura releases so we can get into some of that stuff as far as reviews go um, iTunes reviews are always welcome Facebook uh, friend us join the group uh, Twitter you can follow us at gt- twitter.com backslash ggtmc uh, Bob Freelander and, and Pickle of Ten, and I'm Large William. I'm not on there as much as I'd like, um, but and, but you do reply when people hit you up. So yeah, yeah, I try to make a point to reply when people uh, inquire about something. And then uh, finally, br- 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 donate if you want to donate. And we uh. have to talk about something that someone sent us an email for off the air. Yes, maybe later on. Uh, so donate uh, so you can uh, help us with the show. Uh, and that's it. Yes, uh, yeah, I hate to be you know shilling for donations, but please, yes, do donate. It, it helps us tremendously and stuff uh, to keep the show running and stuff. So, and putting out all that bonus content we put out, because we like to put out as much as possible and quality stuff. So, I can promise you, and I can swear to you that not, we do not spend the money on anything else no. beyond bandwidth <laughs> no. and everything else. No. Not, not on DVDs, uh, no. not on anything. No, that would never happen. I'm getting ready to make a donation myself. <laughs> as am I. Uh, hang on, I. It's that time in the morning, I hear. Yes, it's 10 a.m. 
It's 10 a.m. It's 10 a.m. Hello. Are those your aviators? Again, <laughs> in your pajamas, no less? We're getting ready to leave. I got my glasses. You got your glasses, but they're upside down. The, um, the baby snake eater just showed up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Nice. You look like Paul Williams somehow. <laughs> Aviators are huge. You might be taller. Uh, yeah, you might be taller, but anyway, <laughs> you're railroading Sammy. I will, but let Sammy speak. All right. Uh, okay, so your root picked his pick, which was my bodyguard. Hi, uh, hey, hey there, Louie. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it that when that come up there next time, he won't know to call me Rick or call me Sam. <laughs> no, I know it's true. <laughs> Sam is like the furthest from my name. Um, so my pick is the 1984 uh, breakdancing phenom known as uh, Body Rock, directed by the auteur known as Marcello Epstein. <laughs> so the only other thing Marcello Epstein's known for is Motley Crue videos. So uh, yeah, I think Will has actually seen this film before. Am I right? I have, and it's amazing. I'm going to watch it with my wife because she likes Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> she gets to see him breakdance and rap in the late 80s. <laughs> Yeah, this movie has a better cast than it deserves to. So it should be interesting to talk about. So it'll be Body Rock and Bodyguard, my bodyguard. So a lot of body in uh, next uh, next week's show. So that is it. Uh, let me cue up the outro and we'll say our, <laughs> our adios. All right. Uh, well, I'll talk to you after this. Adios. Let's say adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207 And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com Thank you.